0: Hi everybody, welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, where we read the books of Game Studies and we talk about them. I'm uh, Cameron Councilman,
1: And I'm Michael Lutz.
0: Today we're talking about Celia Pierce's, Celia Pierce and Artemisia, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a second about what's going on there. But uh, 2009 book Communities of Play, colon, Emergent Cultures in Multiplayer Games and Virtual Worlds. Um, had, had you read this
1: book before? I had not. I'd also not read this book before. Um, probably should have. I was going to say uh, it, that there were parts in here that reminded me of, uh, your, your, your master's thesis, actually. Yep, if I could go back and, uh, rewrite that bad
0: boy. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, as I think all people feel about their master's thesis, if only I knew then what I know now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess I was just reading, um, you know, the, uh, Feynman's history of physics and not Celia Pierce. That was a huge <laughs> mistake on my part. Um, so you know, sometimes you make bad choices. Uh, but if I could go back and, and do it, I certainly would have done that. Now, and the only reason I say that, that's a real some inside baseball for people, is is um the concept of emergence, which I wrote about um in my master's thesis, uh, features pretty heavily here, although very differently and with a very different kind of uh ethic to it. But yeah, I this is the first time I've read it as well. Um, I think you're you're the
1: holder of the biographical information this time. Mm-hmm, I am. Uh, so Celia Pierce is currently an associate professor of art and design in the College of Arts, Media, and Design at Northeastern University. Uh, she got her PhD in 2006 from the Smart Lab Center, which at the time um, was at the Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design at the University of Arts, London. Uh, and uh, generally speaking, her, her field of interests uh, lie on kind of academic art, uh, virtual worlds, and multiplayer games, as well as games and gender. Uh, some other sort of like things of note is that she is one of the uh, co-founders of IndieCade, uh, the Independent Games mm-hmm. Festival. Um, yep. Also, before she was at Northeastern, she was the head of the Experimental Game Lab, an emergent game group at Georgia Institute <laughs> of Technology. Uh, and she's written um various other essays and co-edited some other books uh and in particular like one of the books just to note kind of the continuity of her scholarship here was in uh 2012 she wrote uh and published ethnography and virtual worlds a handbook of method uh that was co-written with tom bolstroff bonnie nardi and tl taylor
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah, uh, T.L. Taylor showing up a lot in this book and showing up in Game Studies Study Study Buddies all the time. <laughs> Apparently, yes. And showing up uh, on Twitter to talk about Game Studies Study Study Buddies sometimes. <laughs> Shout out to T.L. Taylor. Thank big, you big so much. Big supporter of the
1: show. Yeah.
0: Um, but, uh, but yeah, like uh, it, I, it, it has been interesting to read kind of this period of books and realize, like, see all the connections that are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this kind of network map of, of who is in conversation with who. Which I find is re- really interesting. Um, I'm assuming you haven't read that
1: the Handbook of Method. Right? I, I have not. Okay. Well, me neither. <laughs> I was gonna say, it turns out I'm I'm a Shakespearean Cameron, not a not a virtual ethnographer.
0: Well, you know what? Also, same. <laughs> I don't know which, or I'm not a Shakespearean. But, uh, <laughs> occasionally I'll have a meeting and uh, I'm working I'm working right now pretty closely with someone who is uh, it, 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 she is a Shakespearean and uh, and uh, we're working on, on a grant together and uh, she'll be mentioning something about Shakespeare and I'll be like well you know I I, I speak to another Shakespearean all the time and she'll like start talking about <laughs> Shakespeare and I'll be like no 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 I don't I don't know anything about Shakespeare <laughs> I just speak to Michael all the time <laughs> Um, so, so you get your, your appropriate promo in my life. You're Great. like my, my street cred. <laughs> I'm like,
1: I know a Shakespearean.
0: <laughs> I'm cool.
1: Uh, just get, getting the good word out there, like mm-hmm. building up the, the Michael Lutz brand.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. So I, I think our plan here, if, if anyone has their book in front of them, um, and if you don't, that's fine, but I just want to give everyone kind of a, a top-down view. This book is about 300 pages long of, like, full content, right? And they are uh, MIT Press, right, um, uh, page page sizes, right? So it's a big square. Mm-hmm. So there might even be more text than a normal page um, on these books and uh, or, or, or uh, in these books. So our, our plan here uh, is to... The, the book is broke up broken up into sections. There's five sections. We are going to kind of leisurely breeze through section one, which is the first four chapters. Uh, they're kind of introductory. They're a little bit methodological. We're going to kind of talk about those in a general sense. Uh, the second one is about, it's so the second section is titled The Uru uh, Diaspora. We'll get into what that means in just a minute, but it's about the specific kind the of Uru thing that happens diaspora.
1: around the Please cut that. Unless, unless we're going to save that for the the range touch soundboard. Have you been sitting on that for weeks?
0: <laughs> yes. Like
1: as soon as you saw it, where you were like, where you were like, uru, uwu. Yes. No. Like the the second I started reading this book and realized that uru was you know, going to be the thing, I was like, ah, oh, I'm gonna have to make an uru joke. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna
0: leave it in now too good everyone will love it or they <laughs> won't or people will be may, just absolutely mad about it um you know uh, uh retweet if you hate it <laughs> hit that <laughs> fave button if you, if you if you love it <laughs> um the uh but anyway so we're going to talk about that this kind of play community we'll, we'll figure that out again that's going to be kind of a kind of big point by big point just because these as we were talking about off mic beforehand Um, Michael, you were saying this book is really dense. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think dense in the sense of like highly technical, but there's an economy of language to where a lot of information is delivered very quickly Mm -hmm. um, throughout the whole thing. It really was kind of an endurance kind of thing to like sit and read a whole bunch of chapters in a row. Um, If I'd have been a smarter person, I would have started reading this several weeks ago.
1: I mean, there are not... just you know, for reference, there are seventeen chapters in this book total, yeah. and I think that might be the most chapters of any book we have read.
0: I'm trying to think. Yeah, with I think but, with I mean,
1: potentially I... the exception of Hamlet on the Hollow Deck, which is which was mm-hmm. similarly like a very sort of. Um, A sort of thick book in terms of like what it's doing conceptually and the types of information that it's giving you your overview or on and then giving kind of the analysis of and then a projection from and it's doing a lot right it's it's doing a lot in the same way that Hamlet on the holodeck does a lot of things
0: absolutely um we are probably going to skip uh section three um which is uh it is a research method chapter about doing ethnography within a game particularly a a virtual world the extent of what we have to say about that since neither of us do any form of ethnography is it is interesting it is uh if, if you're interested in that it's cool to read but we have literally no commentary on it um, because that is not our training, and it's kind of like a, a, a methods proof chapter, right? So if you find that really interesting, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you should definitely check that out. Uh, but we're we're not going to talk about it at length, um, although we will absolutely talk about like what this ethnography is doing in section four, which is kind of a an, an uh, auto ethnographic account, or it's or, or or yeah, I mean it's Pierce's account mm-hmm. of. What happened there? We're probably gonna spend a big chunk of our time on that and then section five Which is kind of like a longer conclusion about what these methods allow a scholar to do uh, We'll hit on some high points there, but but uh, probably spend less time there as well So we're gonna spend a lot of time on the kind of big um, unique sociological slash anthropological things that are going on here and less time on the nitty-gritty of method um, which it's like I said, cool to know, but not something that is uh, like I can't give you really fine grained interpretations of what's going on here because it's just just way out of my field. Same.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Now uh, remind me. I think you're you're a Shakespeare scholar. <laughs> no, I am uh, God's holy fool. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing and therefore speak speak most wisely. Um, yeah, but. <laughs> most ignorant (laughs) uh chapter
0: one michael communities of play in the global playground page three wrote this quote down quote play communities are neither new nor unique to the internet Thoughts. bam (laughs) i think Um, that might be the first the first thing in the book too (laughs) it is it's the first sentence yeah uh
1: i mean i i think it's good uh i mean i don't disagree Right, like, uh, but given like what we're what we're going to come to understand is like communities of play and so on and so forth. Right, we we need some unpacking here. But uh, I will say one thing that uh, marks the earlier chapters of this book is something that we've talked about a lot in, in discussing other books from about this time period or or a little bit before um, the sense that to talk about games has to be justified in, in very particular Mm -hmm. ways. Um, and so one of the things that Pierce starts out with, and again, like I do not disagree with what, uh, she is arguing here, what she's writing, but, um, to sort of like contextualize the type of rhetoric that, that we're seeing, um, Mm -hmm. by saying that these play communities are very, very old, uh, on the one hand, kind of almost sidesteps the issue of why are you writing about video games? Because, uh, video games become very small within a historical context and in fact at at one point in this early chapter uh Pierce says uh she, well she she traces the history of multiplayer games back to 3500 BC yep right <laughs> which is um i mean again right do not disagree like that is true but like that's the sort of uh the sort of rhetorical notes that she's trying to that she has to hit in order to make this argument for why write about video games, and specifically why write write about video games uh, from this particular perspective of sociology, anthropology, ethnography. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we also get our kind of listing of game scholars. uh, Huizinga and Kawa are two people who are talked about, um, who we've already talked about before. Uh, And in particular, the notion from both of them that play is uh, what we might say useless, or it might have a lack of seriousness right there's there's no actual production from play it's kind of this uh weird undirected meandering um and she also talks about uh Brian Sutton Smith who uh is a has differs a little bit on, on that point with the ambiguity of play uh and she says she sets out saying well no actually right the Huizinga and Kalwa they're wrong like Play play has a goal, it has an aim, and that goal and aim is deeply implicated in sort of the social nature of ritual uh, throughout human history.
0: Yeah, there is a uh, a distinction being made, right? Because I think it's Kalwa, right, who says that play is unproductive, because mm-hmm. uh, that, that's what she ends up quoting. I didn't write it in my notes, but it actually comes up to, uh, at least twice in the book, this kind of specific... Idea that is from Huzinga and then inherited by Kawa and kind of phrased differently by both of them. You can listen to those episodes for our long form <laughs> thoughts on those. But um, but the play inherently must be non-productive and, and just like you're saying, Michael, the the kind of move here is to say actually it's incredibly productive and what it produces are all kinds of ephemeral but but socially crucial uh, connective tissues uh, or pieces of connective tissue. Um, one of which and, and kind of uh, maybe the Uh, the kind of substructure right that gets produced here is that they create a context in which communication happens and communication provides the kind of social I don't know webbing that allows for all kinds of other stuff to occur as well too Um, it's really interesting to see this right as someone who is technically a scholar of communication (laughs) weirdly (laughs) enough I have to think about that sometimes that is technically what my uh, what my PhD is in but uh it's weird to see like communication show up in that kind of way but not be theorized as a discipline or a field but rather as like a given that like anthropology here or that sociology can
1: can grasp onto and then explain Mm -hmm. right communication is a thing that happens and this is important for kind of the the second uh wedge of pierce's argument uh which is the the communities of play we we will remember are not uh new nor the the second half of this unique to the internet but what is happening is that the internet is providing a space where communication happens in many many different ways and can happen much more rapidly or at a a sort of more accelerated pace than it can in face-to-face communication or just at least the 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 non interneted world um and that is going to be another kind of complicating factor for uh what this means as as pierce understands it right like this is this is something that is being brought to the table of communities of play of a sort of social ritual in this way that has not been present up until this point
0: yeah that they're um and so it's an interesting kind of move it's a double maneuver like you're talking about of one on one hand being like it's not new but on the other hand the way that it that ha- the way that it appears in our world is is at least new or kind of uh different there's a quote on page six Uh, Where she says, quote, network games have created a kind of participatory global playground where people can now interact dynamically in real time. Mm -hmm. And it's that real time connection that actually really matters here Um, because voice chat, um, uh, uh, text chat, and then um, uh, like localized play, uh, what she ends up calling horseplay Mm -hmm. later, Uh, this emergent activity of horseplay, right? Doing, Doing silly stuff. Um, all of those things are like afforded by the ability to stand around in a 3D space and, and do stuff, uh, or even like in a mud, right, or or, or uh, uh, like a a moo uh, to be like slash dance. And it's like you know mm-hmm. Michael Lutz is dancing. <laughs> he's he's doing the twist or you know whatever. Right? Um, but so so on one hand, there's that right or that kind of transformation that's happened in um, communication technology um play always been there there's the transformation and then at the on the other end of that transformation in the early 2000s
1: there was a thing called uru
0: <laughs> <laughs> are you so are you a mist person michael
1: i am not a mist person i played the original mist and i never finished it uh but i know i know about mist itself mist the game i don't know mm-hmm. anything about the sequels uh, so oh, the pages, Michael. The pages.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> oh, my sons. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, my 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 large, powerful sons. <laughs> um, but uh, they, uh, yeah. So there's mist, right? And um, she does a kind of an explanation, big game for the history of video games. I think we talked about it in Hamlet on the Holodeck episode, right?
1: I think yes, we talked about. Yes, we did. We talked quite a bit about mist there.
0: So, you could, so you can probably go back and check some of that out. Um, but, uh, but basically, there's Mist, uh, Cyan, made by Cyan, made by a very small team. I think seven people were involved in that game, seven, to eight people. Mm-hmm. I've got the original strategy guide for Mist somewhere here in my office that has the team photo, and it's awesome. <laughs> uh, definitely a tag yourself kind of uh, Twitter thing. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll put it up. I'll put it up on the Range Touch thing. Okay, good. <laughs> you can tag yourself in the original Mist team. Um, uh, and then they made ribs. So it sold a bajillion copies. It was a pack-in game from Windows 95. Actually, I have repeated that information multiple times. And when we, I, this is all coming back to me now. When I said that on the Hamlet on the Holiday episode, a bunch of people were like, what are you talking about? Uh, I believed at one point that it was a pack-in game. And I've read things that said that. However, the people have spoken to me and told me I am wrong. Hmm. In any case... It was accessible in the Windows universe. Um, so sold a lot of copies during the Windows 95 era. Riven comes out, the sequel, sells a bunch of copies as well. Very complicated, big, long game. Uh, Mist 3 comes out, which stars Brad Dorff <laughs> as a, uh, as a uh, evil kidnapper. And uh, and then Uru comes out. I th- I think that's the order. And then four and five are after Uru. Mm-hmm. Um, but Uru takes the game um, or or adds an online capability uh, through a couple different things. Um, one of it one of those things is like a shared game space where like you can come into my Uru world and like help me solve puzzles. One is a uh, a thing called a neighborhood, which is like a little kind of I mean it's like a little shared garden space right mm-hmm. that that is like my own little private server basically yes um I'm not wrenching it or anything but but you know a certain number of people can do it and I think that's it right that's the only those are the two kind of ways that you could socially interact on the platform
1: that seems to be it like you can yeah like there's it seems like there was so one of the things that I, I might as well say up front is um Despite the fact that this book has a lot to do with Uru, I am not entirely sure still what playing Uru was like or what it entailed. I yeah. don't know if that is the same for you, but it does seem like, uh, and mostly this is just because I have a hard time wrapping my mind around like what a multiplayer version of Mist looks like. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I,
0: uh, I similar, I mean, I already kind of knew about Uru, um, but I wrote in in my notes very early, right, that like. I don't it's very hard to get a sense of like what what the people who we are learning about in this um, in this book, like the kind of cast of characters that Pierce introduces us to what they are actually doing, Mm -hmm. like with their time, Mm -hmm. Um, because for the most part, it seems like 99 percent of this is happening basically in a chat room um and that could be how they're using it most of the time right it's just as a social space but sometimes i mean she talks about how sometimes people were going to each other people's worlds to do stuff basically i mean from my memory of uru right basically there was like the single player space where you went into this big 3d world and as opposed to mist and riven and then mist 3 right rather than kind of single screens i think mist 3 uh, had scrollable screens so they were bigger than the visible area Mm. um they still weren't fully 3d right and so this is the first kind of big fully 3d misty puzzle universe Mm -hmm. um and then you were just solving increasingly hard puzzles to like go to different ages Mm. okay so it was like it was like mist yeah i don't think there's much more to it
1: yeah so that was yeah i guess that's the other thing right is like uh and this is partly like game design brain poisoning but like i am not quite sure what the core loop of uru was
0: because it seems
1: puzzles right because it does seem (laughs) like you have this place you hang out in you go and you solve some puzzles maybe your friends come and help you and then you go back to your neighborhood and hang out until there are more puzzles to solve but
0: there were never more puzzles to solve so that, so I think that's the thing. That's like the kind of like weird confusion that's going on here, right? Because mm-hmm. Uru comes out, it has a delimited number of areas with a delimited number of puzzles, and there's like a beta process, right? This is, she gets into this a little bit later, but I think it's important to do now, right? So Uru, the game comes out, we can all buy it. Me and you can buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a basically a beta of the multiplayer content that exists that some of us get access to right there was a long waiting list Mm -hmm. and so then after we access that beta content then we could hang out in my neighborhood which is like our own little private garden Mm -hmm. but but that's not even like out of the box behavior um which to me and i'm glad that you're bringing this up is that because yes on one hand it seems like not a lot to do in uru other than play the game as you would normally play a missed game and then hang out in your neighborhood which is maybe why hanging out is 90 percent of the book Mm -hmm. um but two incredibly self-selected community right like uh people who care about a 3d missed game uh which i think is is driving away a lot of the more like casual users and i mean casual in the sense of like I, knew a, I, I still know a lot of people who enjoy Mist a lot. There's a New York Times article from like two days ago that was like, in quarantine, uh, I go back to my childhood pleasures, like playing Mist, And that was like the article, right? So that has enough. <laughs> Mist itself now still has enough cash or, or cu- cultural cash it. Mm-hmm. I always get this wrong. Cultural presence uh, for people who don't consider themselves to be like game players, mm-hmm. for, for that to play in the New York Times. So there, there was, like, doing that, and then you had to know to sign up for this additional thing, and then you had to get into that additional thing, and then you had to have a good enough internet connection to use it, and then you had to be able to use text and voice chat eventually later, in early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah, so this like, is like this is like 2004-ish.
0: Yeah, and it's super hyper selective, right? Because I was a big Mist fan. Me and my, me and my mom, huge Mist fans, big into <laughs> it. Like I cannot can't can't state enough. We played the first Mist game on the Sega Saturn, which is <laughs> not the optimal way of playing Mist. Okay, like even like Riven, all that kind of stuff. We did all those games, and Uru was announced and came out, and it was like, okay, well, I don't have a good enough computer to play this. Um, I don't have the internet period (laughs) like hard stop um and certainly like the idea of voice chat at that time would it was just completely like not gonna happen right yeah um especially for me right I, i think probably like ventrilo in 2005 would have been the first time or 2006 and like ventrilo at like someone else's house right yes um so anyway that's all to say Uru exists it, it, it attracts a certain community and but that community i think is is pretty self-selecty in more ways than just like do you like mist or not it's very self-selected in income level in uh,
1: uh region and all kinds of things like that mm-hmm. but i've gotten this off on a tangent well uh not so much a tangent because these are all things that pierce does does discuss um sort of the 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 community of the mist player of mist players or the i should say really the the uru players um, comes mm-hmm. up even in this first chapter because pierce notes that you know uh there's no killing in this there's no violence um the the avatars are not like hypersexualized uh reading between the lines here right we're we are to understand that this is something that stands in opposition to like world of warcraft mm-hmm. uh which is about killing and violence and factions, um, and every every uh, race having some weird sexy component to their design, uh, in some mm-hmm. way, usually on on the the female avatars. So, uh, Uru here rhetorically gets figured as kind of a, a contrast World of Warcraft, and so we get a kind of contrasted group of players who are more interested in things like collaboration, puzzle solving, um, so on and so forth, right? So there is a and then later on in the book, uh for I don't remember which specific chapter, but she does also get into kind of the uh the class distinctions, right? That the that the Uru players tended to have more disposable incomes, at least partly mm-hmm. because uh a lot of people who are getting into WOW are People like you're our ages right at this point mm-hmm. right like teenagers uh who can afford this uh what was the original wow subscription fee 10 bucks or 15 bucks yeah it was pretty cheap like i know i was like working at walmart and paying for a wow subscription right um mm-hmm. so uh and and the other thing about wow is that it was a thing that i could like dip in and out of between like work and school and uh whatever else i was up to whereas uru ends up uh attracting people who remember mist right like so again b- tapping into like your bit about that self-selection right people who are really into this cd-rom game from 1993 mm, that's me that's mm-hmm. me buddy well i mean it's you right <laughs> but it's like yeah it's it's yeah. these are the people to make this distinction right these are the people who were buying if 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 Mist had been a Windows pack-in game, right, these were the people buying the newest Windows PC in 1993 and getting that, that Mist CD. Yeah. Right? Or these were people who knew what a BBS was before 1995. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it, it
0: does seem for... It, it, it's interesting that there's a lot of... Uh, well, I guess we'll talk about it later. But there's an interesting kind of um, seesaw here between, on one hand, claims that many of these players kind of felt the the experience of being an avatar for the first time or found that significant in uru versus them being a um, uh, a kind of enfranchised audience who were like familiar with these things already. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get a, We never get a good sense in, the, in this book, I don't think that I can remember um, of where did the people who were playing uru. Come from before they were playing Uru,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? We get a we got a good sense of like where the Uru players went. Yes, after Uru closed down. Spoilies. Uru closes down <laughs> very very rapidly. Um, yeah, very, uh, more than once. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, so yeah, we we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, something I want to flag here that's going to come up again later too is she calls uh, the Uru closure that happened. So uh, Uru exists as a single player game has this beta multiplayer component. Uh, They allow people in on a list-by-list basis, and then there is a quote-unquote clerical clerical error that allows everyone on the list in at the same time, and then a few months later, that same clerical error happens again, and everyone gets in, and then like a month later, the game closes down for good, or that that, uh, online component closes down without ever being launched as like a real full feature. Um, and there's some speculation here about why that is ubisoft the publisher says oh it's because there weren't enough players where um uh the the, the vibe that pierce gets from the community is that uh, the servers just couldn't handle like an actual number of players you know she says slowdown started at 15 or 20 people um and so if you have hundreds of people which she eventually gets to that's really difficult but she says uh, that there is a quote shared trauma that happens
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, when when this closes down, and I'm, I want to be a little bit attentive to, attentive to that language of like trauma and violence that's happening here. It's going to come back later mm-hmm. um, because I, I I I don't know if I want to push on it necessarily, but I do think it's worth being I, I don't even know critical. I, I want to talk about it. Yes, right. I I want to I want to put it in some brackets and really kind of figure out like the trauma or or the violence of closing down an MMO. Um, And at the end of the chapter, she kind of runs through a list of other massively multiplayer online games, MMOGs, and kind of talks about how they came and then they kind of went. Um, Asheron's Asheron's Call, I remember being a really big one of those that she talks about. Um, But uh, but yeah, that's kind of the first chapter. What do you think about chapter two, Michael?
1: Uh, Chapter two is interesting because this is where we kind of get into some... uh... Uh, claims like making distinctions between different types of games and Mm -hmm. uh, sort of trying to establish a vocabulary or a grammar for talking about things that don't necessarily have a a meta language uh, to describe them already Um, Mm -hmm. and for what it's worth I I tend to be skeptical of this sort of thing even though like sometimes it's necessary and I do think here it is necessary and I think that something that is good about Pierce is that uh, I never get the sense that to contrast her with, say, Espenarsef, um, uh, never seems to have the, the sense that the the particular sort of program that she's put together to describe this, this instance of the object is necessarily the final way of describing it. Um, mm-hmm. So just to give you... You, you already mentioned uh, one of the terms that she puts forth here, which is Massively Multiplayer Online Games, MMOG. Now, you and I, and maybe most of our listeners, might be inclined to call something like Uru and something like WoW and something like Second Life all games. But in this chapter, one of the things that uh, Pierce wants to do is point out uh, a difference between what she calls MMOGs, which are the games, and MMOWs, which are massively multiplayer online worlds. hmm And then um, there's a third term that comes in here. It's virtual worlds, isn't it?
0: hmm
1: Uh, Yes.
0: Yes. Virtual worlds
1: are, by definition, social constructions. Yes, 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 yes. Um, So all of these are uh, terms that relate to each other, and I think that's what makes them, I think, workable to me. Uh, Really, one of the—there are two concerns kind of in this chapter. One is, like, what is a game and what is a world? So— very achievable goals we can answer these questions um we begin with the issue of sort of what is what is a a world itself like what is it that makes a kind of online experience well yeah yeah an experience in virtual space what makes it feel like a world what makes it feel what gives the feeling of worldness uh and she has a couple of uh sort of qualities that she runs through here uh, that it's spatial right like there is a sense that you are moving through space as you uh, play the game Um, it is contiguous which is to say like the the various spaces within the game slash world feel like they connect to each other Um, it is explorable that is to say you can move through it and you like find things you find new things or Mm -hmm. you learn about things it is persistent uh because it is always ostensibly the same world every time you log in you have a persistent embodied identity that is to say every time you log into wow you are uh the same character or at least like you have the same account um with the same roster of characters at your disposal uh it is inhabitable uh because you can uh engage in the world, right? It's not uh, a thing you just look at. You can have a shop that you go to and sell things, and there might be, you know, not necessarily at this juncture, but there could be other players that you interact with. Um, And that leads into consequential participation, which is to say the things you do in the game have an effect on what you do. Or I should say the things that you do in the world have an effect on your ability to continue to do things in the world. Mm-hmm. It is populist because there are other players. And then there is uh, worldness, which is to say that um, essentially, right, it's suspension of disbelief, right? You are willing to believe that this place is a world. Now, she doesn't put it that way, but like what she actually says is uh, there is a sort of continuity of the fiction that uh, the, the example she uses is that you wouldn't want to uh, go from like a Tolkien-esque fantasy into a spaceship and of course my question there is like well why wouldn't I right like I want to see the world that makes those two terms hang together but that's sort I mean, of yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well that's also the thing too right of like um I, I cuz like that example I immediately think of uh, there's an early D&D module where that's the exact thing right you're going to uh, i I'm forgetting the name of a it Spelljammer No 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 it's like oh. it's a module from first edition d d Oh uh, Spelljammer's uh uh, advanced dnd um but uh but it is you you go uh, into a cave um and it's like an adventure thing and when you go in there you realize oh shit this is a uh a spaceship that's crashed into a mountain and that's what the cave is mm-hmm. um i'll be able to I'll, i might be able to remember it later but uh but yeah and so it's like actually like m- maybe in a virtual world that's a problem right but like Uh, in in some in other games that really isn't a problem but i actually find what's interesting about that too is i don't necessarily think like when i read that i didn't get to suspension of disbelief right Mm because the the terms she gives us are a sense of coherence completeness consistency within the world's environment aesthetics and rules and that to me is bazinian realism (laughs) which is like that, you know, being an aesthetics person, right? When yeah. I hear that and when I see all this different stuff, I'm thinking, wow, okay, well, there's a whole book about this one sentence. <laughs> like, I guess <laughs> like the way I would write this book is like completely inverted from, um, <laughs> from the way that she positions it because this worldness, right, does not matter for the most part for the rest of the book because um, it's really about like people's approach to the thing. And in fact, what we find out is that people will adapt to all of these different conditions um
1: really really easily but but yeah sorry you were going to say oh no i was just going to say like i think probably my my sort of the reason i end up reading it as suspension of disbelief is like i just don't think realism exists (laughs) yeah right like yeah all all realism is is like choosing not to acknowledge certain aspects of 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 the fiction or whatever, uh, certain conventions. Anyway. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of Bazinian realism too, right? Yeah. It's like, as long as there is a, a internal consistency to the way that the logic works. Anyway, that, that is additionally a tangent. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so she gives all of these different
1: kind of qualities of, of virtual worlds that you just read. Right. Um, and that really what I think that the, the qualities of the virtual worlds are set up for is so we can talk about the issue of avatars, which I think is probably more... Uh, of more concern to Pierce and her argument than than the world itself is, yeah, hundred um, percent right. The the avatar that she pulls this term from TL Taylor, uh, avatars are intentional bodies, uh, which works in both ways, or rather, I should say, it works in two ways. Uh, they are intentional bodies because they are uh, intentionally assembled by the player, right? You you choose whatever customizations you have at your disposal and you choose you are intending to present yourself to the world in this way uh, but they are also intentional in the sense that they have been designed for you right you your avatar must always be within the ambit that has been defined by the game designers mm-hmm. um and that re- like this is one of the actual core concerns of this book is uh the interesting generative loops that can happen uh when players are given a very narrow or at least you know a a arbitrary parameter within which to work and sort of the behaviors that then manifest
0: yeah what comes up constantly through this book is uh i i I guess i'll just read it so on page 24 on page 24 right quote the central argument of this book is that emergent behavior in games and virtual worlds arises out of a complex interaction between players and the affordances of the play space they inhabit in quote um, and uh, affordance here means like uh, what, uh, something allows something else to do right so i've got my coffee cup in front of me if i grab my coffee cup by the handle the handle or the cup has an affordance of being grabbable in fact being easily grabbable and not burning my hand because it has this isolated handle to it um uh the uh, got Gibson is the person that affordances kind of come out of, uh, and it's, uh, the popular popularized by, uh, the design of everyday things, mm-hmm. um, a, a book I do not care for even a little bit. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, so it's, it's the exact thing that you're saying here, right? That, um, given parameters and given people inside of those parameters, what could then happen? Mm-hmm. And that's what she's trying to figure out. And avatars are the mechanism through which a human being is put into a, a parameterized space, is put into a place with rules. Mm-hmm. Um, what I thought was interesting about this, too, is how the language of avatar has really just disappeared. Yeah. Like, we, I hear the word tune now, which I did not hear probably until I was in college. Like, the you know, the idea that, like, I have multiple tunes on World of Warcraft. hmm um, I'd never heard that. I'd never encountered that until maybe I was in college or something like that. Yeah, no, I would I'm... say
1: say yeah, no, I didn't hear people say tune until into... it was like friends who played WoW in college. Like
0: <laughs> And but but now I hear that regular I hear people say like Destiny 2 tunes and I don't really ever hear
1: anyone say the word avatar huh. in any context. So, uh, one of the reasons uh, this matters also and this gets us gets us into this question that i already mentioned of like what is and is not a game right like why do we call like or we're, when as we're as we're sort of taking this journey with pierce why are we going to call certain things games and why are we going to prefer to call other things worlds um mm-hmm. and this actually involves a return to uh Huizinga and kalwa um who get on the one hand right uh, pretty pretty aptly uh criticized for the way that they do not really care about like quote-unquote girls play um mm-hmm. uh kalwa specifically kind of like writes it off as practicing to be a mother and pierce calls them out on this uh mm-hmm. but then also points out uh that the distinction that kalwa makes between ludus and paideia which uh to refresh your memories uh ludus is play defined by a rule set um and paideia is sort of more directionless um more childlike play so like uh, a, a child sitting uh, with their dolls and improv improvising a story, uh, and you know nothing. Like everything just kind of happens, and it's constantly escalating, and so on and so forth. Right? There's not a, a, aside from like the imagination, there is not really anything that is hemming that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludus is something more akin to like athletics or sports or so on and so forth. Um, Pierce revisits this distinction because she thinks it's helpful for talking about something like World of Warcraft, which is a, a ludic virtual world, because that is a world filled with rules, uh, f- like certain trajectories that have been planned out for you as the player, right? Certain mm-hmm. hurdles you are going to have to jump, you are going to have to get to this level before you can have this kind of behavior right and that sort of thing um that is how those affordances get fed to you or are structured for you uh versus something that is more like uh second life which is paideic um and that is where she makes that distinction between game as uh, something that is more ludic and a world which is something that is more paideic it's more about uh giving you a space in which to just sort of do stuff which is not to say that uh there is no paideia in a ludic space and there is no ludus in a paideic space but that there tends to be a kind of tendency that's a great Mm -hmm. sentence that's fantastic put that on my tombstone Uh, there tends to be
0: a a tendency michael lutz
1: 1933 2021 i'm I'm a metal gear solid character now
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh boss that's an enemy gunship yeah it's uh it it shoots ludic properties you 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 gotta dodge its bullets as opposed to the horse over there which affords a more
1: (laughs) pidaic
0: capability in the world
1: right so there we go right uh the 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 thing that pierce says that all virtual worlds have rules um you know every every interaction you can have with a virtual world is going to be constrained in some way by what has been programmed for you uh, the question becomes recognizing sort of different uh, philosophies of how that uh, interaction can be programmed, and then thinking about uh, what what sort of behaviors emerge out of those affordances. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something she talks about here: is play ecosystems um, to give the idea that uh, as as an ecosystem, right, that there are multiple simultaneous factors uh happen, like all interacting with each other and from there these behaviors can emerge.
0: Yeah, and that there is a so so if we think about like Uru, and this is something that only got explained later, or maybe it's like lightly explained here, but I didn't really understand it until later in the book. Um so like what she's talking about here that, that I think is really helpful to just say up front is that there was Uru, which is a game. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's its own particular little thing. You can hang out in your neighborhood, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That exists but at the same time there are or, or or maybe let me rephrase after uru is uh closed down uh people some people move to there is that what it's
1: called oh there yes 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 there
0: there.com okay. so some people there dot com some people move to there.com dot com some people move to uh, second life some people move to this like third thing that is homebrewed and created by one person named eric those those constitute a larger ecosystem because players are moving back and forth through them, assumptions, architecture, aesthetics, ways of designing the world, and they're all in conversation, so they all move and circulate between all of those things, and they're in conversation with Uru, this thing that doesn't even exist anymore, right, or doesn't allow them to play in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Then, later on, people basically uh, reverse engineer the server system to restart Uru, and then it like kind of comes back, right? So there's this circulation of stuff right of all these different things going on throughout all those different things, which constitutes, uh, so each one of them has their own play ecosystem. And then the whole thing constitutes a play ecosystem. And then there's a bunch of supporting technologies, right? So like uh ventrilo voice chat software, maybe like AIM or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's too late, but right. Additional chat software, uh, MSM messenger. I don't know. Um, So there are all these different other, uh, uh, the, uh, forum that they use. They have, like, an external forum that all these people are still talking to one another. Um, all of those things together
1: produce what Pierce calls
0: the ludosphere.
1: Yes, and I, I actually really like this. This is one of, uh, the sort of revisions that she makes to Huizinga, who talks about the magic circle or rather, Mm -hmm. I mean, he talks about it. He does in fact talk about it. That's in the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. But as we discovered in our episode there, he talks about it maybe once and then everything else is everyone talking about him talking about it. Um, But whereas Wazinga kind of suggests the uh, staidness of the magic circle of we're going to play a game, we're going to go to the soccer field or whatever, and whatever happens on the soccer field is going to stay on the soccer field, right? It's like this total, like, remove from the actual world. Uh, Pierce says that there are actually overlapping magic circles. Uh, The sorts of drama that, or the discussions or the drama that happens on their forum, which is not really a game right like we would not call the forum a virtual world nevertheless uh the things that happen there filter into their.com or filter into second life uh and people's experiences in other games then filter into what they're doing in the games that they're also currently playing uh so there becomes a, a she says you know there are nested magic circles or they're porous mm. right they're like porous membranes um where there is this e- very ecological movement of of material ideas, practices, um, and people. Yep, and that gives us the ludosphere. Mm-hmm. I don't
0: know how I feel about that word. I love the idea. Yeah. Not sold on the term ludosphere. <laughs> Why not? It just sounds like something Kojima would have made up.
1: Well... <laughs> you know what I mean doesn't it I mean doesn't that doesn't that make it seem more correct though given the world that we live in now no oh okay (laughs) I refuse okay
0: I refuse to give in to this 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 uh, valorization of Kojima some sort of truth teller
1: to the world (laughs) on principle okay all right I mean that's fine right
0: (laughs) (laughs) chapter uh, chapter three um, so uh, alongside all those things that you just said, right, that this kind of constitution of the Ludosphere, this constitution of all these play ecosystems that, that talk to each other, um, there are all these different rules, right, and all these different affordances of all these different technologies, all these different game systems, all these different worlds. And when those things all meet together, and when you put people in them, they produce emergent things yes now i i know a lot about emergence i know a lot about one particular guy's view of emergence <laughs> manuel delanda who is cited here he, he is a, a non-linear theory of history what
1: a thousand years of non-linear history thousand,
0: yeah i don't know why I, ooh, it's been a minute uh, yeah a thousand years of non-linear history exactly uh gets uh gets cited here a few times which is all to say um emergence for Pierce really is like if, if you are given a bunch of she's she's borrowing heavily from complexity theory and borrowing very heavily from like think tank complexity theory right so for example um or, or emergence is used to say uh, all kinds of other things or used to talk about all kinds of other things so for example if you get um a lot of people in a uh, enclosed space, and then you introduce uh, something scary in there, right? Like, I don't know, like a firecracker, and a firecracker goes off. You are going to end up with patterns that uh, you might not be able to predict initially, right? So people running for the exits, people hanging back, uh, people uh, pushing each other out of the way, and those patterns might be in fact recognizable and systemic over a long period of time. So by looking at how firecracker plus enclosed space Plus a bunch of people, how those things interact with one another over and over and over again, what kind of conditions emerge out of it, you can actually begin to predict things out of it. This is, in fact, why Silicon Valley really likes ideas of emergence, Mm -hmm. is that it is um, a a patterning uh, mechanism. And this is actually why Pierce cares about it, too.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There's a long monologue about emergence. Well, I was gonna say, so why does Pierce care about it? Pierce cares about it because, for her, um, what is interesting about emergence, and I don't think that's entirely clear here in Chapter 3, but it becomes clear over the course of the book, is that if you understand on some basic level what emergence is and how it happens, then you can, as a designer, begin to create spaces in which particular kinds of behavior emerge. Mm -hmm. And you can't entirely predict that but you can predict it for some in in some ways, right? So she says a couple times in the book. Um, l- l- look for the uh, for the quote Uh yeah this is on 73 later but there's a version of it earlier in the book too she says quote at the core of a pl- at the core of a play community's character is the sort of people the game attracts and later on the page she says the game's own values and ideologies predispose it to attract a certain kind of
1: player <coughs> designed identity
0: It's designed identity Yeah it's very similar to designed identity um Yes, it's very similar design to but with this idea, weirdly enough, of almost like one layer of abstraction out, right? It's like if we get enough different types of the right material together in a space and just let people loose, we will have a pretty good idea of what kind of behaviors might emerge from it. Mm -hmm. I I guess that's interesting, but that's not really what's going on in this chapter. In this chapter, she's really explaining what I, I said before, like what is emergence Uh, What happens there She runs through the lit review on it um, And the explanation I gave to you uh, Here is much closer to the Delonda version than the one that she gives But but if you kind of look at the book You get several different cohorts A lot of whom are just from think tanks Mm -hmm. um, Who are, are kind of working through Complexity theory um, and uh, so 45, page 45, she says, quote, play can be viewed as a particular type of engine for emergence by virtue of its feedback dynamics. And what's critical for emergence is not just that, like, we all played baseball or that we all had a particular reaction to a certain set of material conditions, but in fact that there's a feedback loop that that begins happening where that same behavior or a response to that behavior um, starts kind of a daisy chain of interactions. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. So go ahead. Oh, and I was going. To, so I was going to say that um, part of part of what makes this part of the book, I think, to talk about um, is you will notice we are not really talking about Uru, mm-hmm. and that is because these chapters aren't um, this this book. And I don't know if this is I I haven't read a lot of ethnography or sociology, so this might be fairly par for the course. Um, these chapters are just big theory and lit, not reviews exactly, because there is synthesis going on, um, but it does not become clear until well into the case study why a lot of the things we're talking about right now will matter, um you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about with, uh, like moving between like different types of play environments and forums and so on and so forth, right? That's us, uh, pulling a material from later in the book to explain like why certain, uh, theoretical apparatuses are being set up in the way that they are now. So in yeah. the same way that, uh, emergence is being explained at length, um, one of, like, what is interesting, taking this book as, as kind of a whole about emergence in, in this context is that you have a group of players who are introduced to this, uh, what she calls a fixed synthetic world, which is to mm-hmm. say it like, wow, right. It is a, a world, a virtual world that has been designed for them, um, in the sense that, uh, they are meant to be its players, right. It's not like tailored to them, but it is fixed because they are not in control of it. Um, They see this world, they experience it for a brief time, and then they lose it. And they are sort of cast out into the rest of the internet, right? Uru is gone, and so they go to their.com, and they go to Second Life, and they go to KoalaNet. Um, And then what happens is they use the affordances of these other places to rebuild the world that they have had, or like that mm-hmm. they saw, right? Um, and at the same time, start hooking into the systems and ecologies that were not in the original synthetic world. So yeah. uh, you start seeing things like, and I'm just going to go ahead and pull a late example out here, um, a person in, I think, yeah, one of the um, Uru players who moves to there.com wants to recreate a certain type of building, Uh, that is very common in uru and they call it the cone house because it it's it's a building and it looks like a cone um so this particular player uh works really hard to replicate this precise style of home which then because it is part of the there.com economy now uh can be bought by people who are not originally uru players who people who can buy it just because they want to or like can i don't know if they're buying it or if they just like copy it uh it's, it's not exactly clear how their.com's economy works, uh, but then suddenly this thing, this particular asset, uh, to, to use that type of language about it, um, becomes integral to a lot of their.com's shared structures because it's something that people like, it looks good, and they can use it.
0: Yeah, and and then because people like it, other people start replicating the the style or the aesthetics or like the visual signifiers of it. Um, and so then it, that, that kind of uru look just kind of trickles into their.com in a lot of different ways too. Um, and so, yeah, so, so absolutely. I think that's a great example. And, and, and because what Pierce is after too, with emergence too, it's not just like what a designer can do with it, but it's an explanation of like how cultural practices, this is her language emerge from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, how can things so this is my delanda speaking again but how can things self-assemble out <laughs> of their their elements right right um and and so this is actually where there, i think there's a little bit of weirdness here and i think that like my my understanding of like emergence and my use of, of particularly assemblage theory as a method versus like what pierce is after in the kind of uh, theoretical work that she's engaging with where there's a pretty stark difference right is that um, Delanda is after, like emergence reveals to you universal patternings in physics, like fundamentally, mm-hmm. <laughs> like not not in culture or anything like that. Although I think for him ultimately those things are are functionally the same once like, you draw them down. They're coextensive,
1: right? Like that's yeah, the... <laughs> yeah, exactly right. They, they
0: both operate on the kind of, on the same metaphysics and in the, it's the same rule set basically for re- reality. Whereas for for Pierce there's no like universality that's ever gotten to right um he he wants to say like look at the way things emerge um they emerge through the same process then therefore that must be a universalized process through which emergence happens we never really get that kind of thing for Pierce she really is just interested in how do elements interact with one another and become something more than they used to be actually went and found um i put in my notes here yeah um uh the phrase that delanda uses is that um assemblages which i think are very close to what's being described here uh, or what being produced are irreducible and decomposable which i think is great here right mm-hmm. so um the the uru house right is or or the pr- the, pr- the the thing that generates the uru house right this kind of uh, human um who who builds the uru house that can then become a commodity in this there.com economy right like that process itself is an assemblage and it's there's no way we can pull it apart it's very unique and weird and by itself but you can rip it apart into its different pieces mm-hmm. um but it won't be the anything else right it won't be something less than that it's a lot of talking about emergence i'm sorry um but uh but it's, it's very important for her and just like I think the example you used, Michael, is great because it describes the kind of like the basic engine of the rest of this book is predicated on emergence working mm-hmm. and that all these elements can mix and then produce new and, and novel things.
1: Right. Uh, and then the last chapter in this section is more about the the sociology ethnography kind of angle, uh, which did you have many thoughts on this?
0: Um, I didn't know any of these words. I I know it's very weird or maybe not weird, but it's interesting to me, I guess that the word inner subjectivity shows up like a lot in game studies, Mm -hmm. like a whole lot. And none of it is ever what I understand the word inner subjectivity to mean. Well, what do you understand inner subjectivity to mean? (laughs) And keep it short. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, inner subjectivity, literally the (laughs) co-constitution of, of, of subjectivity, right? That Mm -hmm. these things are, I'm very Merleau Pontian in that regard. Um, and that that's happening here, right, in the sense of, like, intersubjectivity for Pierce is that uh, you interact with other people and there's a feedback loop that, that occurs that where you both get, like, made. Um, but, like, I, ha- I think I, I have now come to understand I have a really weird way of thinking of subjectivity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, I'm very influenced by French theory of the back half of the 20th century. Well, so, who like, isn't? Sub- well, you know what? Who isn't, Michael? Mm-hmm who's who's not but yeah that like subjectivity is a rule set that's like applied to you mm-hmm. it, it's not it's not really organic in in much of a way you, you can make it your own right but like you you become a subject you were made a subject um through a lot of big social processes and some micro processes too but you know there's the the, the family home school and office right as as Foucault would say that turns you into a subject right mm-hmm. it is not from the bottom up it is in fact from the top down almost exclusively um which is how like all kinds of different forms of subjectivized violence happen to people it's it's because the, you're produced as a thing and then policed as that thing um but uh but yeah so so she talks about intersubjectivity here kind of going through the anthropological work on it which is slightly different but same idea people are co-constituted together um and that that process is always in flux um, and then gives us a difference between virtual ethnography versus cyber ethnography. Um, if you find that interesting, you should jump on in and read this because uh, it's a fine grain difference that that might perhaps be helpful for other uh, people. Um, and then uh, thinking through the different forms of ethnography that might be helpful for understanding um, play cultures in particular. Um, and and really the the whole thing being like this whole chapter is just, what are the tools that are available to people who want to work within these worlds, the, these kind of MMO worlds, uh, and then produce reliable anthropological research? If you find that interesting, this shows up again in the, uh, like, method chapter in section three. If you think those things are cool, come and read these chapters. But, uh, Michael, you want to talk about Uru? I hear you. I hear you over there. I hear you, I hear you rubbing your hands together like Birdman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we we'll want to talk
1: about Uru. No, can't, can't wait to talk about Uru. So. so we
0: already know what Uru is, thankfully. Mm-hmm. We've established that 100%. No one's confused <laughs> because it's not confusing at all. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so we get well, it's six chapters about um, Pierce's relationship to a community of players
1: from Uru. Mm-hmm so uh, uru the game is let's let's talk about the level of the fiction because we've kind of talked about what we mm-hmm. do mechanically um, mm-hmm. one actually no let's let's step back and do one more sort of interesting mechanical rejigger so one of the things that is, Well, let's step
0: back one more thing oh, okay what are what are computers okay okay I don't so, know <laughs> um,
1: a computer is an abacus that mm. is moved by steam
0: uh,
1: okay when go, I go, press go. a key, on my pipe organ. <laughs> um,
0: Got it. Okay, okay, great,
1: great. Established. <laughs> so, uh, uh, the the mist games are very well known for being uh, first person perspective games. Uh, they are kind of uh, painterly is maybe not the right word, but um, you mm-hmm. you very much like you are a person moving through a world in three dimensional space, but you are sort of to talk about subjects right you are almost like subjectless in the sense that you have no like specific personhood right you are sort of disembodied Mm -hmm. you you're just sort of like this weird visual ghost floating through uh these worlds solving all of these weird lever puzzles and so on and so forth um uru switches this up a bit because it is third person. So for the first time in a mainline Mist game, you are seeing your own character. And you create your character, and you wander around the desert for a little bit, and then you somehow you f- are trapped, you fall into. It's not clear to me like exactly what this means. Well, but,
0: Michael, um... if you had read the Book of Atrus, you <sighs> would know that Ginn left Atrus with his mother... In the cleft early uh-huh. in his life. And then when Ginn had perfected, or at least believed that he had perfected the art, he returned to the cleft to get Atrus and take him down to the city uh, of the civilization of the Dunny. And when they were down there, they discovered many different things. They discovered all the water. And then
1: Atrus began to learn the art of the lost civilization of the Dunny. Okay, well, there you have it, right? Yeah. Uh, you, as the player, are you you go into the cleft, uh, and yeah. you are you you the players, right? Collectively, then, um, are being tasked with the recovery of artifacts or like information of locations of the Dunny, which is a uh, D apostrophe N I. They are this sort of long vanished uh, civilization or race. Um and uh, as you learn more about the sort of history of of these people, it gets more complex, right? There's a race of I don't remember the specific word that is used for them, but like they are called like beast people or beast races or something like that. That the yeah. the Dunny keep as slaves, even though the Dunny are initially. Uh, represented as very peaceful and loving, and sort of you know new in that New Agey kind of way, um, and it turns out like oh they might not have been so great, and this is something we have learned through our exploration and recovery of of artifacts, of of locations, of ages, which are the sort of fantastical uh, pocket universes that are connected to books that the Dunny could create.
0: Yeah yeah the the dunny civilization if you were if you read the book of dunny mm-hmm. the third book in the in the trilogy um you find out that they go to tyranny which is uh, an age and it's kind of the last vestiges of dunny culture and it's entirely predicated on slavery oh um, cool so so this is kind of uh uh you know continuing the story that had already been established in the
1: fiction mm-hmm So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of, like, what the, what the game is as, as a setup. Um, it turns out that, you know, there's not explicit instruction that is given to players. Like, it's not like you, you go into a puzzle room and it's like, Welcome to the puzzle room, player. Here are the puzzles you must solve. Make sure all of the backgammon pieces have been put back in the bag, and that sort of thing. Uh, It's very much true to (laughs) true to the style of Mist. It's like you you see a mechanism. You can push parts of the mechanism. They will change. the 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 mechanism will do stuff,
0: right? And you just sort of have no idea how much I want a Mist puzzle to be put putting all the backgammon pieces back in the (laughs) bag. Like well, a whole it room of be, gears it... and shit just flying around and, <laughs> like, the actual puzzle is, you gotta you got get all those backgammon pieces. Yeah, <laughs> <you have> back? <laughs> um,
1: yeah so, 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 like, uh, this, is, this is what the game is. It's you solving these uh, puzzles and in, in some way, and the specifics of this are not delved into too deeply. Um, solving these puzzles gets you additional information about the backstory of the society, which um, actually calls to mind, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about in our Henry Jenkins episode. Uh, hmm. In in that right, like the, the environment is intended to tell the story, and you are supposed to kind of solve the environment. Um, also, this is this is something that's never really explained. Apparently, um, Cyan, the developers, paid certain actors, like certain players, to uh, foment strife. That's a direct quote from from Pierce. Um, so the, the unlike Wow, this game does not have factions. Yet somehow cyan is paying players to foment strife right to so like the the if the point of the game is like oh you're going to recover this or that legacy of the dunny society apparently cyan is paying people to come into like the game and just like start talking trash in the chat being like we should give up like we the dunny aren't that great we shouldn't do this or something
0: yeah I think so uh, yeah it's not really explained but I think that's the vibe right is right that, that people are just doing that I love the idea that like that this was happening in like o- over on WoW Baron's chat was occurring right <laughs> just <laughs> the two the two radical differences <laughs> of like what kind what, what what the designers thought that their players were doing
1: mm-hmm. um, but, right yeah. and like for, for the record right like the players of Uru hated this like And I must say, I think I agree with them if like they're if this is what was going on, if it was just like they were paying people to come into the game and be like, hey, we should just give up or like, I don't know, like in trying to instigate like lore arguments or something. Who knows? I think
0: I don't know. It depends. I mean, maybe here's the thing. If someone paid me to do it, I would think
1: it was awesome. (laughs) That it would be a it would be a very sweet gig. Yes, I would 100 percent do it. But like from, but even like you know, like thinking about the design of it, because I think
0: that like you, much like you know, much like me, right, are imagining the worst version of this, mm. right, which is like someone coming up and you're all just like talking in normal human voice, right, about puzzles or whatever the hell you do in Uru, and you, and then someone runs, uh, runs up and is like, "Forsooth, young sir, do you knoweth the history of the Dunny?" <laughs> and, and so like. You know, it's like a like a Winfair actor running into your like video game <laughs> experience, which would suck, right? But if someone showed up and, and was like, "Look, y'all, I we there are these factions, and I know that we're supposed to be solving these puzzles, but I've been reading on the lore wiki, and I don't know." I mean have you seen this page and then you're like creating your own war wiki pages (laughs) right through through like a bunch of sock puppet accounts that the the corporate account gives you right like that could be fun like but it would that's almost like an arg right Mm -hmm. as opposed to like something that's happening here um but i don't know i i guess i'm saying the ceiling on that uh, on that concept
1: is much higher than it seemed to actually go yeah (laughs) well speaking of like concepts in reality uh this is actually it's the next chapter where we get uh, the fact that there were forty thousand people invited to the Uru beta, of w- which ten thousand logged in.
0: That
1: sounds right. Yeah. Um, so that's just just not a whole lot. And in addition to kind of the weird staggered way that the invite system worked, it is not surprising to me that this game did not catch on.
0: Yeah, and so I'm curious. I'm I'm looking right now. Um, uh I'm looking at the numbers. Okay, here we go. Someone someone has compiled this numbers for us. Um I'm curious because right there was a conversation that was happening around um you know, was it because Ubisoft couldn't keep up with the number of uh, like the servers weren't good enough or was it a lack of players, right? Mm-hmm. 10,000 people logged in in uh 2006 there were 6.5 million users of World of Warcraft. Wow. So, yeah, right? So, like, you know, I guess if you're Ubisoft and you're looking at your online property versus World of Warcraft, maybe 10,000 indeed is not enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, You know, to be fair, as a lover of Mist myself, right, as someone who wants to, who believes that Mist has the moral authority here,
1: I uh, I can I can perhaps see the business
0: argument. Mm-hmm. Uh.
1: So yeah. Uh. That's like that is we've our second time kind of recapping what happens with Uru, uh. But suffice it to say, a whole bunch of people. Um. I think it's even if it's you know ten thousand or less, it's still a whole bunch. Uh, that's a, a lot b- of people. Yeah, yeah, it's more people than I want to deal with. Uh. These people play this game. They get to know each other. Um. We get the sort of foundation of certain communities because, and we get these the, the stories of these folks later. Uh, you know, certain people kind of fall into the the role of being community managers by virtue of being the first person on the server, right? Yeah. Um, the first person in this beta. Everyone else shows up and they're like little babies and have no idea what they're doing. And it's like you were here first, right? You're the one who knows. Like, help me, help me figure out my way in this game. And these people arise to the occasion, which is what uh, you know. Pierce would say is another sort of example of emergence.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That like these people are going to self. Uh, you know, knowledge is going to be transferred among them. Uh, it's based on like who got there first and was able to claim the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and so like you got to kind of ally with them. Um, and so yeah, so from here on we get the creation of this thing called the Gathering of Uru.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a. Uh like a guild kind of thing
0: yeah yeah but like a guild like if you got your own guild house immediately Mm -hmm. um which is uh i i guess pretty forward thinking for the time right i mean that's not in world of warcraft at this time at all um it seems like this game is actually thinking about social systems a lot more than any other mmo at the time but or, or online game at the time um, but uh, but yeah, so that it ends up, uh, the Gathering of Uru ends up having about 400 people in it, um, and uh, you had to get invited to this neighborhood, and so that ended up happening for these people, and then the game gets shut down. Mm-hmm. So the rest of this book is about what happened to the people who were involved in the Gathering of Uru everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, on page eighty-nine, quote: "This collective trauma and the ability to share its aftermath together via their own self-created chat and forum was absolutely critical in cementing the bond that carried the group forward to its eventual immigration and ongoing survival." Um, and so, we've already talked about a few different ways that, that happened. So, these people ended up going to uh, Second Life, there.com, and then a self-created, like, online physical space where like all the 3d models were made by people from the community and very few people actually ended up using that. There's kind of a longer justification here for two terms that she uses. Uh, She uses, she calls these people refugees and Mm -hmm. she calls this a diaspora. In fact, this is the whole process, right? That she's talking about is the Uru diaspora, Mm -hmm. how people went from Uru to different places. I don't really know how I feel about using language of refugee and diaspora for this kind of thing. Like technic- there's nothing technically wrong about using those terms, but
1: they they are not words that I would use to describe this. Right. Well, one of the things that gets um, that sort of is mentioned to to justify the use of refugees is that this is how these players understand themselves. Yeah, which I could understand, but then I also I, I agree that I am not sure how I feel about this language of of diaspora and trauma um, being applied to what was certainly like not a great experience right you did lose a play community um but then also like then rebuilt that play community elsewhere right it, it 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 did not have kind of the the finality of impact that um the actual loss of a homeland would so
0: the the one place that i think that it is uh, really like justified or thought through the most is Mm -hmm. in the discussion of lynn who is in a wheelchair she's a wheelchair user Mm -hmm. and uh about how she speaks specifically about her experience of embodiment via the avatar and what that was like in uru versus how that is not approximated in other things and that to me like i understand then the language of trauma of Mm -hmm. of having a very particular kind of uh, emotional and adaptive Relationship to something and then having that kind of Ripped away from you without any kind of control That, that makes a whole lot of sense But um I, I, don't, I don't you know I don't know Maybe I, I, I don't want to close off a world in which These things are traumatic I just don't know if I would say that the experience Itself in a general sense For all 350-400 People is trauma mm-hmm. that, that seems a little bit uh, strongly Worded mm-hmm. um but also, I guess I don't know what the benefit of me policing
1: that language is. So, mm. well, and sort of similarly, right? Talking about like the is- issues of, of of refugee and diaspora, um, the so the, the, the pocket of the there of the Iruvians uh, or the TGuvians uh, mm-hmm. who go to their.com, uh, like, one of the first big problems that they encounter is that someone... It's like someone knows someone who's kind of a, a high-level player at com, and this person gives them... Basically allots them a small section of land uh, near the Emerald City, which is kind of like the little environment that that uh, she runs. Um, and so all of the TGU players on There.com are near this place called the Emerald City, and they're, like, trying to rebuild... Uh, the neighborhood, right? What it looks like uh, as close as they can. They're trying to approxi- approximate it with their .coms assets, um, but then because there are there's this influx of new people who are this close to an already established, like you know, sort of virtual life world. Uh, a couple of things happen. One, uh, there's there's there are resource challenges, right? Suddenly we have uh, more players on the server, and it's causing lag for everyone. Uh, and this makes the pe- like the long term their.com players hanging out in the Emerald City resent the Aruvians for moving in and like causing all of this latency. And then there's also all of this sort of, uh, you know, Fear that starts percolating up about well how much how much space are they going to take how much of the resources are they going to take um when when are we going to draw the line can we really trust the person who's in charge of you know this city or shard or whatever uh to to have our interests at heart um which is like you know even though it is happening within kind of the the the, this weird context of a disney looking virtual world um Clearly reverberates with like various types of, of uh, social strife and uh, anti refugee sentiment uh, in in like the material world, right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's right. I, yeah, like the I I maybe the I, I guess I I am just registering a feeling. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whereas I think like I agreed like the technical she got to that language for a reason. And it does describe really well, like, the kind of process that's happening. It just feels weird. feels weird mm-hmm. to see it used here in, in a case that is uh, both both refugee diaspora and trauma being used in in a, in a thing that, um, I don't know, I, I just don't, I, I can't, I have a hard time getting there. Actually, but, let me
1: index something. Okay. I have a thought here. Okay. I think part of the reason you and I might have a, a bit of a, side-eye toward this um mm-hmm. is that and i've already mentioned i think that this book is kind of a product of its time one of the ways that it is a product of its time is that it talks about and thinks about the internet and online and the virtual worlds and sort of the, these communities that it's describing um in a way that we don't really get anymore it is i yes i absolutely did a few times
0: while reading this book just think i don't think about these spaces in this way
1: even a little bit right so there's something um i'm maybe almost mystical but like there's there's a kind of novelty and a newness and really we're not sure how to talk about what's going on online at this point Mm -hmm. um when I say we, I'm actually, like, you know, casting myself backward and aging myself up a couple years. Uh, But, uh, you know, the online still feels so separate from the real world that this is the language that kind of presents itself when we're talking about the movement of these social groups. Um, But at the same time, like, right now... uh, it, do, it would not, I don't think it would register like that to us, right? It would not register to us as sort of strange and novel. It would just be like, yeah, no, there are tons of online communities. Some of them are, like, radicalizing people into neo-Nazis, and for some of them, people are, like, learning how to make their own Pop-Tarts at home through YouTube, right? <laughs> yeah, um,
0: and they live and die every day.
1: Right, exactly. And, and that maybe is part of it,
0: too, right? Is, like, for, like, It would be unfortunate if one of the many communities that I consider myself a part of so for example if uh, uh, Chip and Ironicus stopped making YouTube videos YouTube Mm -hmm. Let's Plays That's a community that that I see myself as a part of in the sense of like I watch those videos every time they come out I've been doing it for a million years. I know Mm -hmm. you do that too Or you've at least been watching them for probably longer than I have I've been watching them since high school So there you go right like we are part of that community in a a serious way and that would hurt my feelings a lot like I would feel bad for like a day Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't describe it as trauma right but I'm also not expressing myself through it so you know I don't you know
1: yeah I don't know anyway right like I just so I just think that's a thing that I that's what I wanted to index right is I think there's a, a kind of difference in how we relate to online spaces and virtual worlds uh, now and like things that happen online right the interpenetration of online and real life is much fuller now than it was in 2006-2009 in
0: yeah I, I, yes. Yeah. So I think that's a really great way of putting it is that maybe the, the language choices here that make me feel weird is just because my context is so radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right, I've been using my real name on the internet in a bunch of different professional and non professional capacities for a full decade, mm-hmm. right? Like, for a, a chunk of my life, I, every dumb mistake and, and uh, thing I've ever done has just been on the internet. There's not a difference between me on the internet or me on this podcast. Or me on uh you know sword coast coast to coast there's not a difference or in the youtube videos right there's not a difference i'm just like one human being and there's not self-presentation that's going on other than like uh you know i comb my hair when i'm going to be on camera mm-hmm. um, but there's not a lot or other than like that kind of Goffman sense of like we're always putting on a social mask right mm-hmm. um i'm fully one dude across all of these different spaces um But I've never been dune
1: buggy griefed. I love that line. (laughs) That is so... One of the things that happened to the uh, to the TGU players, uh, and this is, is
0: unfortunate they... to be clear too. Yeah, I don't yes. I don't want to make light of it. It sucks that this happened to them.
1: Right? They they would. The specificity is funny. Yeah, that's what makes it is the specificity is they would do griefing, which this is another thing that marks it in time. We would call this trolling now because basically everything you do online is trolling um, if mm-hmm. it makes someone else angry or uncomfortable, whether or not you intend it. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, Back when the days when we just, like, did griefing in games. Like, when me and my friends would try to, like, stand on each other's heads in Halo and walk around as, as, like, a very, very tall man. (laughs) 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 Um, That's what we did. Uh, Extremely uh, master chief. Yes. Uh, But, uh, so, one of the things that would happen to the TGU players uh, is the folks from Emerald City... And I'm just going to quote this. The primary form of griefing entailed players running over avatars with dune buggies. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason this is so great, as you said, is the specificity. And it's kind of like the way that the specificity gives you such a clear picture of the uh, sort of mood and atmosphere of the late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s. Right? The fact yeah. that the primary way of getting around in there.com was having a dune buggy.
0: Yeah, like, like you can see the designers being like, you know what would be fun and like kicking radical? <laughs> dune buggies, <laughs> hover cars, jetpacks. Oh, uh, it's great. But it's like, yeah, so what they would do is they would basically, because I guess you would, I'm not sure if you would ragdoll, right? But you would get flattened basically. And so if you'd be like animating or walking around or like doing something you cared about and someone hit you with a dune buggy, it would just cancel your animations and like make you fall down. So mm-hmm. it was extremely
1: annoying, it seems like. Um, Yes. So anyway, that's uh, one of the ways that uh, certain players express their displeasure. But then this chapter ends uh, looking forward to something I've already talked about, which is to say that a lot of these Aruvians get integrated into the there.com community, right? Eventually, there is that kind of, um, to to stick with kind of the the language, um, the assimilation of these players into the larger kind of Ecosystem of, of their.com Yeah Absolutely
0: um, and so then the next chapter Whereas that's like the context Right of how they got there The next chapter is really about how these people Adapt and deal with their um,
1: um, With their avatars And mm-hmm. to have an experience of their avatars well, um, This is this, I was going to say and this is why the I think the avatar ends up being More important really than like worldness mm-hmm. uh, Because And I think this is Something that gets mentioned, but I don't believe I have it in my notes. I think this was, for many of these players, their first experience with an MMO anyway. Yeah, one of the players does say that. Yeah, Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this idea of having, like, your own customized avatar ends up being something that gets charged with a lot of emotional significance. And
0: especially for missed players, right? Which, Mm -hmm. up until this point, have had no—there's no body in those games. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, other than like the falling figure, right? And so like especially if if you come to Uru because you're a Mist fan and now you want to do more Mist, this is really weird for you, um, as opposed to like if you were playing Neverwinter Nights or something. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, Um, so she kind of opens this up by talking about a really kind of crucial distinction here, very similar, uh, uh, again, to designed identity, that avatar is an expression of designers and design intent as much as it is players, right, because designers get to set the parameters of what your avatars are going to look like, things like that, right, so all the different options you have. Uh, There's an interesting point here too that I noted in my notes where she says quote I'm not aware of any other game franchise that provides the opportunity to compare a first person versus an avatar based experience to which I say Let me introduce you to my old friend the Elder Scrolls series
1: (laughs) Well uh, That was sort of the thought that I had because I also noted that when did could you was were the first two Elder Scrolls games just completely first person Uh, Like like the first two
0: first two yeah 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 they were but Morrowind came out in
1: 2003 I think so yeah and it had third person okay and you could pop between first person and third person
0: yep you can hit the tab button I actually looked it up and uh Oblivion comes out before that too
1: yes okay
0: and you could definitely do it in Oblivion you know I
1: definitely remember it happening in in Morrowind but I wasn't sure so one of the other things like one of the other like qualifiers that I would put to that is um I'm not sure. Could you look through your avatar in the first person in Uru? Because what I thought she was saying Mm. is that she did not know of a game that had gone from, like, fully first person, no option, to fully third person.
0: Well, I think in the context that it shows up, right, it's in the comparative, right, and so you're able to think like, what are? It's what we were talking about earlier, right? What are? What do Uru puzzles look like, and how are they experienced through the third person avatar versus how they're experienced through the first person avatar? And mm-hmm. I think, I think that's what. But I mean, you're right that that it's uh, one that transforms from one to the other. That's in the context of like, how could you compare these two experiences? And uh, you know, you can do that with the Elder Scrolls, um, but it's not. It's not going to be productive for you. So her point still stands. I'm just being silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another series. I can't think of another series, to, though, that would be that way. We're going to get 40 people. Can you do that in Dark Forces? <laughs> I bet you can. I bet the, I bet there's a Star Wars game where you can get in Kyle Katarn's eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's a discussion here of Avatar as proprioception, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, that actually comes from one of the players. Uh, which I you know one of the other players what we haven't said so far is that there are pieces of this text that are peppered in that are from a talkback blog we'll get into like what that was all about later in toward the end of the book but so there are sections in this book that are just like copy pastes of things that other players had said uh, in response to the book itself or the writing that that we're seeing being pasted in Um, Mm -hmm. and that comes from one of those uh, yeah, so it's on actually page 116, 117 with the discussion about um, uh, the player who has a spinal injury yeah. Yeah, and what that Lynn. means yeah. for them. Yeah. Lynn. Um, but but yeah, I think we've mostly talked about like all the Avatar kind of stuff. Is there anything here
1: that you think is uh, particularly interesting? Yeah. Uh, no i mean i think i think we kind of covered it like the thing that i think is most interesting actually about the proprioception um argument is that it actually complicate well uh, eventually uh pierce uses this to complicate traditional thinking about immersion in games which you mm-hmm. and i have both gone on the record of being kind of like skeptical toward as a concept that is to say immersion um But for sort of precisely reasons like this, because one of the sort of, like, uh, common sense, quote-unquote, ideas is that the original Mist is going to be more immersive than Uru because Mist more closely approximates what it's like to see outside of some... Like, see through your own eyes, right? That first-person perspective and walking around and so on and so forth. And yet, um, having the Avatar as... A way of uh, establishing an imaginary relationship with the space nevertheless results in a feeling of emergence. Or yeah. emergence, geez. Uh, a a <laughs> of feeling immersion. of immersion, right? Like a uh, 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 proprio uh, perception, right? Like a, a sense of the space around you and a body, right? That is in some sense your body uh, in its relationship to that space. Yeah. So. 100%.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting stuff here. There is uh, this is the first time it came up for me and it never shows up in the book really. Um, but but is a uh, serious question for me is we don't really have any sense of negative group dynamics here at all. Mm-hmm. Like it, to, to read this book all the way through, you would think that other than mm-hmm. some like interpersonal stuff that we'll talk about later, that I, that's not re- really inter, really even interpersonal but is kind of characterized that way. Um, Other than that, there's like, no. this is an almost utopian or idyllic community. People are nice to one another. We don't get a sense of like big frictions or like people who don't like each other or Mm -hmm. like how that impacts who ends up going where or anything like that, which having been a part of
1: online communities before, I find very suspicious. (laughs) I do too. And I partly like to show my hand a little, right? Uh, I, I, feel like i ran with people like these this community right i i ran with people who were like of this kind of cohort who had this kind of orientation to the world who wanted to play these sorts of games in in these shared virtual spaces and i know for a fact that if i were in uru or there or whatever i would have been like with my friends in our like little seat like we would have you know done puzzles with them we would have had some sort of like uh you know, interactions with these people, but it would be like me and all of my like really sassy friends would have our like secret group chat where we just talked crap about everyone else. Right. Like (laughs) I, I can see myself in this ecology pretty clearly. Um, and so the absence of me (laughs) is in some ways, uh, (laughs) uh, alarming.
0: (laughs) And that bubbles up, right. In all kinds of different ways. Right. It's not like you would be able to do that stealthily for forever. Right. There would be a blow up, right. There Mm -hmm. would be some sort of social friction in, interesting interesting maybe i don't know it's weird to me that we do not get a good sense of social friction within this group when when there has to be some right everything is an externality everything is external pressure and uh management and pushing them around the 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 internet but we really don't get a lot of like you know things that people do to one another um on the internet or not right agreed like playful communities or communities of play exist everywhere internet or not and there there's friction that happens in them mm-hmm. um and so the reason i bring that up here is we get one little snippet which really got me thinking about it first right So on 120 quote lisa made an attempt to abandon the group entirely because of stress and real life health problems but tg yours begged her back and she returned to the fray and that says so much about this community in one sentence And it is not elaborated on at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm really curious about that. And I don't think that like Pierce left that out for some sort of tactical reason or anything like that. Right. That's I I don't, I don't think it is inherently a worse book because of that, but it's a big gap for me Is like just having no sense of what the hell is going on. That's not about a positive move in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, communities and cultures of play chapter eight
1: uh yeah this is where she talks about uh bernie de um uh-huh. which is she she is like communities of play is a reorientation of his idea of play communities um which for de uh, i guess he's a kind of sociologist or um ethnographer of play uh communities uh these are communities that are interested in maintaining a sort of sociable player relationships. Um, they're more interested in that than any particular game, right? So it's sort of like the, the, the social club that exists around the local football league rather than um, people who are, like, really into the local football league and how well they're doing and who's going to do what and, like sort of that nitty-gritty, right? It's sort of like people who end up um, being more interested in that social um, environment, which I think is, you know, important, obviously, because we have a bunch of people who used to play a game that doesn't exist, that they cannot actually, like, play the game anymore, and yet they are continuing to maintain the community that sprung up around it.
0: The, uh, what, yeah, absolutely. Um, Kind of does a, she works through, uh Koven's use of chick fl- concept of flow which we've mm-hmm. talked about several times on this podcast we're not going to go back into it um you know you can check that out we'll do an episode on it at some point uh, i'm not excited about it and then kind of uh Koven's collaboration i don't i don't know if i'm on board for collaboration either Um, And then talks about her big kind of move here is to say that that what really is happening or what's interesting here is that there is inner subjective flow Mm -hmm. means that rather than flow uh, This kind of like idyllic state of play of of happiness and and contentment rather than that happening between the game and the person It is happening between individuals within the context of a game Mm -hmm. Which is actually kind of a big theoretical move and kind of goes away after this chapter
1: Yeah well and i mean just one of the one of the things that i was not quite sure i bought into here was something like uh this is near this is on page like 134 um so one of the one of the to give an idea of how this works what uh pierce is saying is that uh in a game um there is a tension between uh feeling like an individual who contributes to the group versus feeling like someone who is just conforming to the group. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You don't want to be a person. uh, And I'm sort of speaking in generalities here, but like you, you don't, because that's sort of how this is presented is that everyone can be kind of the same in this way. Um, You don't want to uh, be the person who's just kind of like being pulled along. You want to feel like you're meaningfully contributing. Um, So, uh, you end up with a a kind of dynamic where people are constantly, uh, by aligning and strategically sort of disaligning themselves with the group um are all pushing each other toward finding new experiences in the game right Mm -hmm. like this is like oh that's the person who always does this and this right like there's like um, one of the players is like the cartographer because they're the one who uh knows the maps the best right and they can like lead other players around the maps um But that also, like, means that there are people who are less good at looking at the maps, and so they want to get better at that, or they want to help the person who does all of the cartography work, and so on and so forth. So uh the quote here from 134 is while they are not necessarily setting out to create new games or game mechanics so you know tracking like doing doing some sort of metagaming here by tracking maps or like keeping uh, track of easter eggs and things like that the unconscious meta goal of achieving intersubjective flow becomes the driver for emergent spontaneous and unanticipated behavior um and surprisingly right uh What I bristle at here is the idea of an unconscious meta goal that like what everyone unconsciously wants is intersubjective flow, which is the the appropriate feeling of being a part of a group while also being an individual.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Like I just I just do not like I just do not think that's how desire works. Right. Like (laughs) like I don't think that's what everyone wants. Right. People want really weird things. Yeah right <laughs> yes. um, yeah so, my
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the the kind of like collaboration graph or or the like individual versus conformity kind of mechanism that's happen, happening there um, and like to be clear I like Bernie Decoven. I wrote the waypoint obituary for him right I think he's an incredibly important person I think things that people have built off of his play off of his theory of play Are very important At the same time There is a reason why All of the Silicon Valley Tech bro stuff Was in the same social circle As Bernie DeCoven And participated in a lot of the new game stuff Like the whole Earth Catalog All that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Um, It it is very Compatible With a kind of like Rugged individualist uh, Smart libertarian Kind of thought
2: Mm-hmm.
0: you know it's an ideology and it's mm-hmm. not just an ideology that's like play is good it's an ideology that has other components to it um that privilege like you're saying a form of desire that i find um put upon rather than uh it, it feels top down rather than bottom up as a theory of desire mm-hmm. <laughs> How about that um so i agree with you yes yeah um here's a question for you michael uh since we're you know we're really going for it as far as time is concerned.
1: Um, why is everyone writing poems all the time? I mean, so the this community, again, as I've said, I know this community. I know mm. these people. I can see myself in relation to them at this particular juncture of, of online history. Um, and so I'm going to project a little here. Okay. Poetry is how you express sadness right poetry is lyric because these are people who are and I'm not saying this like to to sort of castigate them right like these are people who are sensitive or think of themselves as sensitive at the very least and one of the yeah. things sensitive people do online in the early 2000s is you write poetry on your blog mm-hmm. right like that is that is like a that is something in the in the in the air at this particular point in time um so yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, folks writing poetry about the the ending of Uru and the happiness that they sometimes have at the the community that they've made and so on and so forth and yeah, like that's that's my response. That's why people are writing poetry. Well, there you go. I didn't know. I wasn't writing poetry. I was going to say you you and I at the very least uh, traveled in different circles and early online. So. We were in different worlds. Yeah. I, um, I was out in the woods. I was in. I was
0: in the, the school of life. I was in. I was in the internet of 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 the
1: real internet of things of trees and uh, shit. You weren't. You weren't like subtly in, instantiating schisms in webcomic forums. No, I wasn't. Right,
0: I, I was. Uh, i don't know i was probably i was probably playing playstation 2 (laughs) and and like and doing urbex (laughs) what what would later be known as urbex um i was was doing outdoor hooliganism yeah that's what i was doing Um, no one's been
1: in this building for a while let's break its windows yeah no i didn't Um, break any windows I was pretty good about that
0: kind of thing but i'll force the door open (laughs) chapter nine patterns of emergence uh i don't have a whole lot to say about this chapter Mm -mm. it's kind of a a reiterating of the ludosphere um and a lot of the kind of social
1: construction stuff that we've been talking about before right so again like about the the structure of this book um the first couple of chapters lay out a lot of uh theoretical and methodological concepts we follow this with several chapters that look at things that happen within the context of uru um and then after that we get uh some chapters that then kind of sew up uh like what we have just talked about right putting putting what we saw in uru back into conversation with kind of the theoretical uh tangent that was outlined at the beginning um so yeah Yeah. so we've already done a lot of that kind of like
0: contextualization for you uh if you're interested just generally in what's going on in this chapter it's really kind of a big list i mean they're they're worked through but it's a big list of um the different kind of parameters that you can augment as a designer or the different kind of of, of sets of affordances that allow different things to emerge or, or different forms of emergence right so Uh, spatial literacy exploration cleverness and creativity these are things that are emerging out of out of these conditions Mm -hmm. um i thought it was interesting but not the things i thought were the coolest about it we've already talked about so
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um the next chapter i was gonna say yeah the next chapter is productive play which productive play quote unquote right that's her answer to to the earlier allegation that play is unserious or unproductive right actually play is productive um, not all of it is equally productive, but we can call productive play uh, the sorts of play that give rise to types of social bonds or, uh, you know, whatever weird uh, niche you, you suddenly find yourself occupying as a digital artisan of a virtual world, right? The person who makes the cone houses. Uh, that is that is a type of production uh, because it is Putting you or like that, that play becomes productive because it is putting you into uh, contact with other people um, and sort of contributing to that uh, intersubjective production of of yourself as a as a person.
0: Yep, um, and gives us some like very specific ways that that happens. If, if that sounds interesting, to you you should read the chapter, um, chapter eleven: porous magic circles and the ludosphere. Favorite line, perhaps, or fa- favorite word, I guess.
1: Uh, that we've read this year, quote ludic leakage. <laughs> uh, I did not. I did not write this one down. Can, so can you uh, refresh my memory on where this comes up and why? Uh, it's it's basically so
0: like one of the examples that's being used here is that uh, you can post a URL in chat and it'll open up a web page. Right. So there's this oh. kind of like porosity. It's the same stuff you were talking about before, right? But this guy that the magic circle is more like a membrane, right? And they leak into one another. And just one of the pieces of language she uses for that is ludic le- leakage, which <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's great.
1: I mean, speaking um, of like old communities, right? This reminds me of the Something Awful forums when we talked about like, oh, Hell Dump is leaking. You're talking about WAM? Yeah, WAM. WOM. WOM
0: uh the uh yeah i mean uh this is again a lot of what we were talking about there's a lot of uh um uh the diaspora stuff being uh, used again here but this is i think where she introduces the fact that she went to the physical meeting
1: yes of yeah. the
0: people at their.com and we get way more of that um uh meeting later in the book so we don't have to talk too much about it right here um, but, uh, but yeah, there, basically there was a IRL meeting, uh, cause we were talking about, right. When Uru closed down, they went to three different places. The kind of homebrew place went to second life and they went to there.com. Uh, Pierce was mostly involved with the there.com people. And so there.com as a corporation that does all kinds of stuff hosted a real life meetup and a little bit less than half of the people who went to that real life meetup of people all over there.com were
1: these Uru players. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. just like, I guess, cause we haven't really properly contextualized this. There.com is basically a less weird second life.
0: Yeah. It seems like a little bit more controlled um, and more aesthetically unified mm-hmm. um, uh, second life. Yeah. But very similar, similar idea to it. Um, talking about that, there's a lot of stuff from the other, um uh, players here really weird or interesting it seems like the name of this book beforehand was called being artemisia Mm -hmm. um before it was something else and um what i thought was really interesting here too what really came up for me is like so basically as she's writing this what what i think it was her dissertation and then turns into the book as she's writing it she's posting it on like a, a private blog basically that then these uh other players can go read and then provide feedback mm-hmm. um which i guess is fine but what what is interesting about that is like these are people she is anthropologically studying and show so they are reading the writing she's doing about them which also i guess is fine like i don't i you know i'm not an anthropologist i don't have like a long-form theory of why that might be good or bad for data analysis or data gathering i don't know I can see some pitfalls, and I can see some benefits. Um, what I do think is interesting, though, is that the the text that she puts into the book, um, you can see these people using the technical and academic language that is being used to describe them to describe themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, if we're talking about subjectivity.
1: My yes. kind of
0: subjectivity. <laughs> As like something that happens to you, right? Like this this is these people becoming subjectivized underneath, right? In that guattari kind of way, subjectivized or subjectivated, um, underneath the anthropological apparatus. And there's not really any reflection on that, but I think that is fascinating. You can kind of see it's not quite in real time, but you can see there are at least real-time reactions. And them using the language that she's using to describe them to describe themselves and to contextualize their own position, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like watching someone get psychoanalyzed. Um, yes. I, I find that fascinating. <laughs> no additional thought. No additional thought. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, I think it's interesting. I don't know if I'd write that way. Yeah. Um, I also understand, and we'll talk about it in a minute, though, but I understand why she did that. Because uh, she kind mm-hmm. of had to. Um, chapter 12 Emergences Design Material this is basically the thing that I opened this book up with what I think that she's really after and or or one of the things that she's after in this book is how can designers create affordances in their worlds that generate the best conditions for emergent properties Mm -hmm. that's what it's about if you're interested in that as a designer chapter 12
1: Yep, read chapter 12 go wild
0: Okay. We are finally my like voice is given out. I'm I'm so passionate <laughs> about about this book. Uh Well, I mean, we're on the home stretch. We can We we, we are on the home stretch. Uh, it, it's also that uh hopefully I don't have <laughs> any sort of uh lingering illness, but the uh, all the trees are just leaking pollen
1: and Oh, it is, well, I thought they said they were leaking ludus.
0: There's a lot of ludic leakage out here from these trees. No, it's pollen. It's everywhere. And uh, it's just killing me. Um, But that's all about me. Chapter 13 is the section three we were talking about. That's just straight up about like methodology and doing both a lit review and a kind of synthesis you were talking about before about methodology specifically. We've already actually gotten a couple chapters about that, but this is a longer form of it. We are not going to talk about it. If you want to learn more about methodology this is here for you in this book come check it out come to the discord and talk to us about it i'm happy to chat with someone about it but um it's a little bit out of our remit on this podcast um
1: and uh, now we're on chapter 14 michael being artemisia my life as an avatar well okay so the thing you need to know about chapter 14 is that it's part of part four uh the social construction of ethnograph of the ethnographer um and what this section of the book essentially is is a uh version of a diary or a kind of like blog post to oneself written by pierce uh over the course of playing uru um this comes very very late after basically most of the arguments have already been made and at the same time i was really it 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 gives me context for things that i had desperately wanted from the beginning um which is just things like, you know, how, how do you find the Uru people? Like Mm -hmm. how, how did you find these people? Like, where did they come from? How did they come to your attention? Um, and I don't know, again, I'm not an ethnographer. I'm not reading a whole lot of ethnography or sociology, but that was a thing that I wanted to know, uh, very early on was like, how, how did this come to be kind of the example that we focus on? Um, and the story is even better than I had hoped uh, because it involves The Sims Online and The Sims Online Mafia. (laughs) So The Sims Online gets made. It is an online version of The Sims, and it is a big, big ol' failure. Uh, people do not like it. Um, but Pierce, uh, who is in her PhD program, I assume, maybe she's getting her MA at this point, um, she wants to study the migration of virtual communities between games. Uh, and she decides she's going to start with The Sims Online, Uh, because she has heard about the Sims Online Mafia, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, a group of players who roleplay as the Mafia, but also essentially are the Mafia, in the sense (laughs) that, like, you know, they're doing the things that the Mafia would do in-game, and, like, uh, getting a whole bunch of money through unsavory means, and, like, taking backdoor payments for things, and so on and so forth. Um, And... Uh, she goes into the sims online and it's already dying she talks about like this eerie experience of walking through the the mafia neighborhood of the sims online and all the houses are empty and no one's on the streets (laughs) uh and it's just like this is great this is like 100 everything i wanted um (laughs) and she finds out that a lot of these people because the sims online uh is not really what people want to be playing um the the people there have already filtered into i think second life um i think second life is where she goes first uh but anyway she tracks some uh sims online mafia people down and presents herself and is like hey i you know am and like i'm a phd student interested in doing some sociology on this topic i would like to follow you around and do ethnographic research and during these opening discussions one of the people she's talking to says to her if you think we're interesting you should talk to the uru people <laughs> and so everything <laughs> you know, it was shifts. real weird <laughs> right <laughs> right everything shifts right like the, the the world turns on its axis um and that's how Pierce gets into uh, talking to the Uru folks, right, in the gathering of Uru. And so it should be made very clear, and she has admitted it before this point, but it actually just raised, like, more questions for me. She has admitted she never played Uru before it was shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so she doesn't play it until later when it actually gets started back up, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but, yeah, so that's sort of the story of how she comes to Uru, Um, And she starts kind of doing the beginnings of her research and um, a couple months. So the the research in total takes up 18 months. I think I have that number right.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So a year and a half of research of, of, you know, playing Uru and meeting these people and learning about their habits. But a few months in, there is a crisis that is precipitated when Pierce is interviewed for a, like, local to like UC Irvine um, paper it's like the I, I looked this. I looked up this article and read it and it's for like the Orange County Courier or something
0: is it is it so I did I wanted to read it and I, I didn't have time is it rude no
1: it's not okay
0: so um, uh, yeah to give context to what happens so she's doing this research she gets interviewed um, and po- like shows people the article and everyone gets extremely angry at her uh, over the article Mm-hmm. partially due to some misunderstandings and partially for legitimate
1: reasons right so um the again i've I've read the article it's it is, it is about what you would expect of an article written in late 2004 talking about a sociologist who is doing their sociology research on a bunch of people who play a fantasy role-playing game online. A lot of, um, what will they think of next, kind of... Yeah, 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 no, exactly. It's that sort of tone. Um, and it is, to me, right, and again, like, or not really again, but, like, something that's worth pointing out is and this is not to toot my own horn, I do not read things in the way that most people read things, right? Like, I spent a good portion of the last decade learning to read things with a fairly fine-grained eye. Mm-hmm. Um, it is clear to me in reading this article when the author of the article is kind of editorializing um, versus, like, things that Celia Pierce is actually saying. Mm-hmm. There's but, uh, quotation marks around this. Yes. Yes. No. There are quotation marks around it, right? And it is very easy for me to separate out what is kind of the the writer's can't, which I don't think is particularly bad can't, right? It's just kind of like it, it's condescending in the way that we would expect, Yeah. Um, versus what Pierce is actually saying. But uh, it seems that people in the Uru community don't make this distinction quite as well, um, and they take the the feel like the, the the specific simile that gets used uh is that it's like being under a microscope and they don't like this they feel very um sort of violated by uh the way that they have been exposed to the world
0: yeah and and so pierce kind of has like two reactions on one hand it's like oh it's understandable uh maybe there's a misunderstanding here and two it's i do not understand what i'm doing wrong and it has this kind of longer conversation with a couple different people Uh, In order to figure that out and that's actually where the blog that I was talking about before that that comes out of that process she's only been using text chat beforehand and not using voice chat and Mm -hmm. um, And some people have like motor disabilities or, or, or or just don't use text and feel uncomfortable using text and so they've felt that she's kind of like standoffish she hasn't been very uh, participatory in a lot of the activities that they do she's been very much observer and less participant observer um and uh so they um they, you know they're reacting it seems like there's several things that maybe have built up here over time that maybe she wasn't totally aware of that all kind of get compounded in this reaction um but on the mm-hmm. other hand like what what's strange to me about this kind of reflection moment is that even if there's no misunderstanding and even if she had done everything you know correctly quote unquote or like done everything to 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 make everyone happy beforehand no one likes reading an article that's predicated on like look at these weirdos like and Mm -hmm. it's about you right no one is going to ever enjoy that right and Mm -hmm. and and so i do kind of think and maybe this is uh, you know it's a mistake that you can make and i get it right but if you're going to be interviewed by a newspaper about your online research about people who play an online fantasy game in 2005 or 2006, you, I think you should probably know what's
1: coming down the pipe. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is another thing that I actually think is is worth pointing out. Um, the names that we have used for these players are the names that Pierce uses in the book, but they are not their real names. And when I say they're yeah. not even their real names, I mean they're not even their real online handles. Um, she mm-hmm. follows uh, ethnographic practice by assigning them pseudonyms. The article does not do that. It mm-hmm. uses their real in-game names mm-hmm. slash handles. Um, gotcha so there is there there is something sort of more pointed about that uh even then like when it describes like two of the characters who uh two of the characters two of the players who initiate a romantic relationship right um there's nothing sort of like untoward about that and also that might be because i i that's just so normal to me i could not imagine what it would be like to be a a person of this age bracket because these are people who are in their like late 30s early 40s yeah these are baby boomers Um, Yes, uh, who are suddenly like have their names out there, being like, "Oh, they met online on a video game, and now they're shacking up," right? Yeah, uh, like that. That carried probably much different uh, weight for them uh, than it does for me. Because for me, of course, it's like, "Oh, yeah, well, you and like seventeen of my other friends."
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a lot of like kind of justifiable unhappiness that maybe I, I, I just she, she seems less aware of it. Kind of in mm-hmm. the in the blow by blow that happens in the in the writing here, um, but that but so she she implements all these reforms, all of which I I think probably are good you know, and definitely makes the participants much happier. And um, then she talks about multiple instances of people. Kind of the next big thing that happens, right? Is there are multiple instances of people who have been playing uh, female avatars who are in real life men,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, so like this this strikes me very very much uh because it's mentioned early on. It's mentioned in one of the first chapters when uh she's sort of describing like the demographics of Uru. Um and she says that uh you know of of all of the TGU players only three instances of what she calls cross-gendered play were were sort of encountered. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just kind of like mentioned and gone past uh and also this is to talk about something i mentioned earlier it uh it ties in with the way that this is distinguished from world of warcraft where you have a lot of guys who are playing um you know sexy elves with large breasts because they like to look at sexy elves with large breasts and so on and so forth right yeah. there's there's and that's uh, like
0: asserted as like a fundamental yes. claim
1: right um so this is one of the ways in which uh uru and tgu are different right the the avatars are less sexualized obviously but also then suddenly there's um a claim of uh not uh, an implicit claim of because there is less reason or room um for the emergence let us say of sexualizing your avatar for creating an avatar to look at for reasons other than like titillation um this is supposed to be i guess closer to who you quote-unquote really are um and the the way that it is so quickly breezed by in the opening is strange to me because it takes up so much of this memoir portion Mm -hmm. those three instances like there is so much drama and in fact to touch on something you said earlier where where are kind of the ugly feelings in this group this is the closest we get to the the real acknowledgement is like someone uh revealing that they have been playing the other gender um that is available to them so it just comes off feeling very very weird because the each case like it's not worth getting into the particulars except I'll talk about the first one like the first one is a guy who is playing as his wife
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is just... And she's not playing the game.
1: Right, and she's not playing the game. (laughs) So he is playing, like, he has an avatar uh, who is, like, looks like his wife is named after his wife, and he is playing her. Um, Just like, you know, that guy on Twitter who uh, was passing himself off Uh, as uh, his wife, who was the woman in the picture that was his avatar. Anyhow, uh, and then actually his wife does end up joining the game, but playing a... playing him and then they keep the secret they're still each playing the other and then i don't know it's and then i start that, like flipping
0: sh- around yeah it's it is a it is an interesting internet phenomenon
1: right um and i and to be clear i don't think that this is malicious right this sounds like something that was actually like done for for a good laugh um but then the others are are stranger because these are people who are kind of like well established in the community um and there is a sort of big discussion of like who feels betrayed when it turns out that someone is not actually you know a a a woman on the other end or uh and there's like like sort of group meetings are called and it's decided like it's sort of like collective somehow we don't really get the ins and outs of this but it's sort of like discussed it is mooted who is going to continue to get, a, to be allowed to use these avatars and how? Yeah. And w- like what, um, this, this also relates to something you had said earlier about, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember what it was. Uh, but there are moments here where I feel like from an ethnographer's perspective, the thing you would want to do is step back and interrogate the frame that the community is taking. Uh, sort of unacknowledged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that uh, gender presentation becomes so important to this community? What does that mean? What are sort of the, the associations with it? What kind of assumptions are they making about uh, people in general, about people in their play space? What is it that they want their community to reflect? And what does that, how does that tie into how they think gender works or does not work in the real world? These questions are asked, um. Yeah, um, yeah, and even weirder about
0: it too, right? About this kind of like frameworky kind of thing is that really the most we get out of this, and I understand why because this is a long chapter that is about her feelings in the moment, right? But, but particularly the the kind of third case uh, in which it's her basically her best friend in the game. Mm-hmm. um is is uh who has been uh presenting as a woman the entire time has been in voice chat as a woman and like mm-hmm. non non detectable quote unquote right uh, mm-hmm. as as uh as a man uh, is revealed to be like a man and has a beard mm-hmm. that's like acknowledged you know like really made a point of and she has like these interesting feelings about it and like you can have all the feelings on the earth that you want. And I think that like that's important to like write and be honest about your feelings and things like that. But in both that second and that third case, right? And I think this has to, to do a lot with your kind of question of like what is the, the social framework, right? Is that it's 2009, and I get it. But it's mm-hmm. very hard to read these things and not think of issues around transness. Um, Mm -hmm. and to, especially the third person really kind of seems like someone who was on the cusp of transition or really making an active effort to kind of figure that out. And then
1: for whatever reason, that doesn't, that doesn't work out. That's the, yeah, I was gonna say, that's the person who says, um, something along the lines of, and I don't have this written down, but like, I've been speaking as a woman, uh, online for so long that I don't remember, like, like I have to learn to speak as a man again yes yeah yeah it, like keeps and falling back
0: into the voice and voice chat
1: yeah and yeah 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 and it's it's just and to be clear like the 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 idea that there can be like people who are transgender who also play video games does come up here but it comes up only to assert that these people are not transgender yeah that that like that whatever is going on there that's not it
0: and w- one, I, did they did they tell you that <laughs> like I, you right? Know. It's it's unclear <laughs> and, and you're one of the pr- people that they're coming out as to like reveal their Embodied real-world gender right to make this situation less complicated and so It's not as if you're going to get the full story because you are so deeply involved. You're their friend, right? And you are involved in their social life as much as anyone else. It's not like you're an external actor that gets access to God's eye information here, right? So uh, it's all to say, this is presented as like, here are these people who come out and reveal that they are in fact men, when in reading this in 2020, I see a thousand other things that are happening here. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that's not to paint these people. I'm not saying that like, oh, obviously these people are trans or anything like that. But I think it is. it seems to me more complicated than, mm-hmm. than what is written on the page.
1: And that is, yeah, exactly the sort of point that I would want to make about, you know, the, the role of the, the, the critic or analyst or scholar here would be to sort of step aside and look at the larger framework that is being um, adopted and being like, what are we assuming here? And why are we assuming
0: that? Yeah. Um, All right. Um, yeah, absolutely. But in the, and this is kind of like an issue too, th- in the sense of, I think part of the thing that you're describing here, and but also why there's not an extensive discussion of class, there's not an extensive discussion of race at all. There's no mm-hmm. discussion of race as far as I can remember in the book. Did you encounter any?
1: I mean, <laughs> there's uh, there's there's implicit uh, race stuff in in uh, the, the slavery discussions within the fiction, but that's really it.
0: There is that. Also, someone does say something racist in the uh, in one of the. Um, like sidebars uh from the other players there is, there's another thing of race but as far as like anything like that right we, we do not get a good sense of like what what the additional kind of intersectional factors are of social life that are both embodied in physical bodies that are, or that are embodied in physical bodies that might have some sort of effect on you know a digital life Mm -hmm. Right. It's really holding on to the fantasy that like the thing for, for as much as Pierce is trying to be very clear that like me sitting in this chair and me online are in a kind of feedback loop with one another that we're constantly producing. And that, that in fact our loop is in conversation with a lot of other ones. There's very little discussion about like how that might get complicated with a bunch of other social factors, even though she met them all on, you know, in real life. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. and might be able to speak to some of that. And so I, I think that's most visible with this question about gender here, right? And I think maybe the response here is like, it's anthropology, the methodology is reportage. You are saying what the world is like to these people. Race might not come up to them very often. But it seems to me like a very kind of crucial context, like you're saying, of stepping back and saying, is this a 100% white community? I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, we, we know that... Uh, someone's language is not uh, English isn't their first language so it's certainly not an all anglophone community mm-hmm. uh, but we do know that the kind of two communities that she's a part of are the United States and Europe mm-hmm. suggesting there's not like an African or an Asian contingent in this uh, um, um, uh, what do you call it the Gathering of Uber. Yeah, Gathering of Uber. I was trying to come up with the whole name. So anyway, <laughs> so there's like questions of nationality. There's questions of race. There's additional questions of gender that I, um, at this point in the book, was really left like being like, "There's there's a big hole here for me," um, in some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This yeah. is also the part where she says that uh, um, the the client is pretty crash. Prone. and so uh, when you use it and it crashes you say you're linking to the desktop age which I think <laughs> is really good
1: I like that a whole lot <laughs> oh, a good little missed joke for yeah that's you. a great that's a great missed joke uh, um,
0: anything else here in this uh, in this chapter you think is interesting anything about the gathering that they went to that you liked
1: um I mean, I liked, I liked it just as, uh, it's a nice little story, right? Like, and I don't mean that in a, in a like demeaning or uh, belittling way. Like it reads like online, uh, get togethers that I have had, right? We all kind of get together and she talks about this weird thing that happens where you can start hearing, um, a person's typing style in their voice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like the way that a person tends to type, uh, In some ways, like resonates with how they speak in in real life, and then there's this like, uh, great like they're they like go into San Francisco, I think, and they're trying to get to um the uh the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Yeah, they're trying to find like the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory, and it's like this this whole like circus of like people like trying to organize and like walk down a street together, Mm -hmm.
0: and they're trying to find parking for like a wheelchair accessible van. Um, yes. And yeah, so, and, and it's, yeah,
1: it's she, like 100% the stuff that happens when you and like, you know, 17 of your online friends get together.
0: Yeah. And that's what's funny about it too, right? Is that she's, she really draws a connection between that physical experience and like the things they do in Uru, right? Like this kind mm-hmm. of like love of solving puzzles and being openly communicative and all that kind of stuff. And like, I'm sure that is 100% true. But also, like you're saying, um if you're in a physical space for the first time with a bunch of people you kind of know from the internet that's just 90 percent of what you're going to be doing no matter what <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like you're navigating kind of knowing these people but not knowing what the hell you're supposed to do to, with one another in a general sense um and mm-hmm. then trying to solve whatever you know like getting 14 people in a ruby tuesday or whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know so you know i think there it's maybe broad more broad than than uh the way she talks about it, but I I really enjoyed that kind of like auto ethnography chapter. I thought that was interesting and good. I thought there was a lot of complication to it. You get to learn a little bit more about her playing Uru when it comes back online for a short period of time. This is also where we find out at the end that Turner Broadcasting and GameTap, right? Isn't that this part here? Yes, GameTap. Yeah, yeah. Where GameTap want to bring Uru back online and they hire her. When she is in a job interview at Georgia Tech, where she ended up going, like you said at the beginning of the episode, um, they ended up bringing her into her room and making her sign an NDA and then saying, like, hey, we want to bring Uru back. We need you to do a bunch of, like, official ethnographic work to determine what the market is for it. Mm-hmm. And then she does that. And it comes back online
1: yeah. for a little while, and then it goes away again. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the end, right? Is is the many afterlives of Uru.
0: Yeah, there yeah, there's like basically three three chapters here at the end uh, in the last section, chapter fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Um chapter fifteen is a defense of cyber ethnography and action research, which is this kind of advocacy research. Um I didn't find this particularly I I, I didn't find like a I didn't I don't know if this need to be its own chapter, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. because it does come back. It comes back for a little while and it goes away again. Um, this, I think could have been more ethnography. Um, there is all the stuff you were talking about earlier about kind of um, uh, qu- additional like questions of the marketplace, basically. So it's chapter 16, crafting cultures, emergence as design material. This is again, mm-hmm. questions of like, how do you create conditions under which emergence and uh, emergence that like is good for you as a designer and a business owner could happen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this again, we get two seventy one quote: "Even before the world is inhabited, the, the seed is planted by the very players who are attracted to it." So she's defending again bottom up processes and how you can kind of create conditions to to generate them, um, and how you can be a cyber ethnographer who is good at identifying those things. And then why you, why someone in a company might want to hire you. So it's like almost a defensive job, which is interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter 17, Global Playgrounds and the Play-Turning Culture. Uh, this is just kind of a big generic chapter. It really is like the broadest conclusion you could draw here. That like mm-hmm. reminding us what play communities are, telling us that we're in a global village again that's like really social and connected to one another. Um, and that fundamentally all of these things that we think are good about Uru and all the bad things that happen with Ubisoft are kind of part of a core problem in the world of virtual worlds or in the universe of virtual worlds in the Ludosphere. because ultimately there are corporations and there are people and they have to run into each other and their desires have to be balanced with one another. Mm -hmm. The end. The end. Whew, we did it, Michael.
1: Yep uh just a a few things Mm -hmm. that i would add to to this um i mean not even really add but sort of like the comments that that strike me in this ending um the thoughts that i have uh this is a quote from page 278 for online gamers this instinct finds uh well actually i need to refer to what she's just summarized for this to make any sort of sense Uh um (laughs) uh she uh pivots off of Marshall McLuhan uh the media theorist Mm -hmm. uh talking about uh sort of like the culture wars that new media specifically for McLuhan television kind of uh instantiated um so then uh She says for online gamers, this instinct finds its expression in play rather than war and sometimes through play war in the alternate universes of virtual worlds, games and fan cultures, players may adopt fictive ethnicities that provide them with a sense of belonging and community, which is, you know, true based on the argument of this book thus far. But what strikes me here with um, this sort of positioned as the conclusion is. And this is not like a fault of this book, and it's not a like a fault of Pierce or her argument, right? This is precisely what leads to GamerGate. Hmm. Like you see the weaponization of this idea of play community as ethnicity as hmm. like the thing that the GamerGaters uh, are sort of rallying around. And in fact, Pierce kind of not not really acknowledges this. I don't think she I don't think she saw it getting as bad as it would. Um, but she does admit that emergence is not always good, and there needs to be some sort of um, moderation or community management uh that uh interacts with the actual like group of players or fans or what have you. Mm -hmm. And the thing that quite simply I don't think she could have seen um is the way that like the big tech platforms that were going to chomp up the internet that this book is about, things like Facebook um and so on and so forth, uh are not really going to be interested in, in human moderators. Um, in that way, right? And mm-hmm. uh, that they're going to sort of, like, let, uh, just sort of, like, let things go and automate what they can. Uh, so, I just, not, not to, like, end things on a huge downer note, uh, but that's, this, this book, again, strikes me as being from a very particular point in time. It's, it's, it's weird because 2009 feels... Not so long ago, right? I was in college in 2009. I remember 2009, mm-hmm. but also it feels like an eternity ago in terms of how how the world that this book is describing has changed.
0: That's that's what's going on in your tombstone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember 2009, <laughs> but no, I think you're exactly
1: right. Yeah, the, there is this. Um, I re- like... Sorry, just, I remember 2009. I remember watching Obama's inauguration and eating a a hot dog that's well, what i was doing <laughs> what a good time
0: what, what, a, what a time in, in history um but yeah absolutely the, the the idea that like they're uh like if these these like uh identific- identificatory capacities and like intersubjective modes of of self-creation um if they happen in game spaces And if it's the job of, like, basically platform, what we, I think now would say platform holders, right, Uh, games as platforms or games as service providers, Um, if it's their job to, like, design conditions for emergence, uh, and if, like, internet platforms are part of the broader ludosphere of that, um, everyone really kind of fell down on the job (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, for that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, probably continue to. Michael, where can they find you on the
1: internet? if you want to find more of me online you can go to twitter.com and follow a guy uh called at warren is dead that's the at sign for twitter you don't have to put at at the beginning
0: if you enjoy this podcast uh you're listening to it on itunes think about leaving us leaving us a five star rating we would appreciate it leave us a little comment there say hey i really like this it's really good and we enjoy it la-di-da-di-da you can put that exact five star
1: podcast five star runtime there you go that's the whole thing
0: um yeah. th- that would really help us apologies out
1: apologies to rob zachney
0: you can go to uh, youtube.com slash range touch now that's going on your tombstone apologies <laughs> to rob zachney <laughs> uh no that's going on my tombstone honestly <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, uh the uh but yeah you can go to youtube.com slash range touch to see the videos that we're making i think michael's planning on making some videos in the future
1: yeah no i'm i'm in the planning stages for um a little let's play series so solo we'll let's goes. play series um mm-hmm.
0: which is fun and you can go to patreon.com slash RangeTouch in order to support the show for as little as a dollar a month that'd really help us out things are getting tight over here for a lot of different reasons uh and uh if you've got you know a dollar or three dollars or five dollars burning a hole in your pocket you can get all kinds of cool stuff that is exclusive to the patreon uh over there all those links i just talked about can be found down in the description below you can go to twitter.com slash range touch to learn about it even more michael is running our social media like an absolute just a goof you're goofing it up over there huh (laughs) (laughs) funny stuff um and I, i got nothing to plug um yeah i think that's it we don't know what our next book is you have an idea
1: uh, I had floated the idea of the book whose name I don't remember right now. Um, um. Oh, Alinda Linda Chang's book? Yes.
0: Oh, yeah. What's that called? It's called The Ecology of Games, The Ecology of Play. Oh, no. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely not called that. The Ecology oh. of
1: Linda Chang. Playing Nature Ecology yeah. in Video Games.
0: Yeah. Playing Nature Ecology and Video Games. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that next episode. Okay. I want to read it i'm gonna buy it right now hooray me too hooray okay so next episode we'll come back in a month with uh plain nature ecology and video games by alinda chang